I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the show, we begin our spooky season celebration. We're getting ready for Halloween. This was supposed to start earlier in the month, uh, but unfortunately, with everything happening in current events, uh, I had to do a few other episodes not related to the spooky season. Uh, Some spooky season episodes may come out right after Halloween, actually. I'm doing catch-up, folks. In any case, on this edition of the program, we're going to be talking to filmmaker Justin Seaman and cinematographer Zane Hirschberger about their perfect for Halloween duology, The Barn and The Barn Part 2, in which a group of teenagers with a penchant for mischief and pranksterism come across a trio of deadly monsters unleashed by a curse that is a legend around town. It's all set during Halloween. It's perfect for Halloween viewing, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Justin Seaman and Zane Hirschberger about the Barn duology. Also, in case you're interested in watching The Barn after this, I believe it is available for streaming on the horror-centric streaming channel, Screambox. Welcome to Parallax Views, two guests that I'm really excited to be speaking with. They have two incredible movies uh, that are just testaments to indie horror in the past uh, few years. Uh, They are Justin M. Seaman and Zane Hirschberger, uh, the director and cinematographer of the movies The Barn and the recently released sequel, The Barn Part 2. How are you guys doing today? Good. How are you? 
Yeah, doing good. How about yourself? Very good, very good. And, you know, The Barn, for people that don't know, this movie, I feel like the only way I can describe it is uh, it, it feels like a cross between a movie that you would find on the VHS rack at a video rental store back in the 90s that you would just sort of come across and maybe, uh, you know, give it a shot just on a chance, right? And maybe a mix of that and Goosebumps. <laughs> but yeah, it's a wild absolutely. ride. Uh, for listeners that don't know, Justin, how would you describe uh, The Barn to my listeners if they're not familiar with the two films? I think it's exactly what you just said. Um, and we can get into that later if you want to, how deep you want to get into the origins. But yeah, uh, the film was a love letter to 80s VHS, 90s VHS, but it was absolutely a mixture of Goosebumps as well. Uh, and that has to do with the origins of how the story came about and how the, you know, um, just everything really and keeping true to the origins of how the the story was made uh but we found a way to balance that that i think people growing up uh in the 90s can can look and go like oh this is like an r-rated goosebumps uh and that's what we wanted to do zane uh you have anything to add to that with regards to the maybe uh 80s 90s vhs feel and the sort of goosebumps vibe yeah, it's funny because we always said that when it started. I was like, this feels like a Goosebumps episode or, or movie with boobs and blood in it. <laughs> um, it. It also reminds me of like when I was growing up, I used to rent a lot of like horror films. And the ones I actually used to love a lot were like the regional uh, independent stuff like Spookies and Dead Dudes in the House and things like that, Hacker Lantern. Like it reminds me of of that that feel where like it's you can tell there's like a like a passion or a homegrown feel to it um it doesn't have like the to me like the sanitized uh generic look of some hollywood stuff where they started kind of getting more slick and uh you know getting away from what made movies i think look kind of creepy back in the day so but uh yeah i said i was always a fan of the uh they call i think they call them regional like the regional horror films so, Justin, if you could, I wanted to delve into uh, the story of the barn and the barn part two and the sort of mythology you came up with. But uh, I think the best way to do that would be to talk about uh, where did this idea spring from? I heard that you had the idea for the barn uh, when you were pretty young and you, you yeah. sort of uh, wanted to make it into something when you got older. Yeah, so I actually I wrote the story when uh... – I don't know where they are right now. They're usually in this office. But I wrote the story when I was eight years old. Um, And I was heavily influenced by Goosebumps. uh, But also the fact that I loved renting horror films uh, from the video store. And so I spent a lot of time at my my grandparents' uh, house during the summer into the fall. And there was just this one evening where... Uh, the leaves had started to fall off the trees and I could see way up into the hill. Uh, and there was a barn that I'd never noticed all these years. And I guess, I mean, why would I even pay attention? It's the countryside, but, but it just seemed so creepy that I never saw this barn and my, my gears started turning in my, my kid head. And I was like, you know, I wonder what lives in this barn. And it went from there to like the, you know, a pumpkin man, a scarecrow, and then somebody that's gotta be protecting the actual barn itself, which then became the boogeyman. Um, and I made these books. I made three of them. The third one I never finished. Cause I think by that time I was probably like 12 or 13 and I didn't really care anymore. <laughs> um, but I did, I did 
had these two solid ones that I really liked. Uh, and for years, as I got into filmmaking, um, I always wanted to go back and attempt to turn that into a movie. And we were going to do it in high school, but it was one of those things of like, I don't want to spend the the time or energy on this if I don't have the budget. So we just made like a, a short film called All Hallows Eve, where we just introduced the boogeyman character. Uh, and then that really made me want to continue to do it at some point in life. And then about, uh, I guess, almost 10 years ago, 2013, I finally was like, you know what? I'm going to revisit this subject matter before somebody else makes something very similar. And uh, I'm going to finally make this film and do whatever I can to get it financed and you know brought to life. And that's actually how Zane came into the picture, because I did not know Zane until until the barn. Zane, do you want to talk about how you became involved? Yeah, I actually was um, not the original DP. I was actually asked to come on as an assistant camera guy by the original VP. And we shot it. And then for some reason, the original DP just kind of didn't really have much interest in it after a while kind of put in a made less than stellar job with it. He was bringing other people and buddies of his to help him shoot it. And I guess it was kind of became a cluster F. And then um, when it was done, I, I always liked what Justin was doing. Like, cause I, you know, I said, I liked the 80s horror films. He and I talked to him and said a couple times about 80s horror movies. And uh, after it was over and the dust had settled, I was like, Hey man, how's, you know, how's everything looking? And, uh, he was like, man, it's not looking too good. There's like, you know, things that are uh, not exposed properly. There's just all kinds of issues. And he didn't like how some of the things went down, like some of the scenes just, they were rushed. So I, I said, well, let's take a look at it and see what we can do. And then for, pretty much from there, we almost like reshot about like what, three quarters of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So we it was were, almost like, it was almost like starting over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even we even had problems with some of the special effect people not delivering like stuff. We were him, he and I. I can't remember. I knew some guys that were in the special effects, and we had a meeting. And Justin just brought a box of like these things called Wuchi, like Wuchi kits. Mm -hmm. and he just dumped this Wuchi stuff. I like, guess this is what we have. So we started getting <laughs> kind of more uh, inventive. I mean, that I I still think the they're pretty grab like you know graphic for like a you know that type of movie like an 80s horror film but like we it's not like shying away but we you know i thought we got pretty inventive with the kills and stuff and how to pull them off and came out pretty good yeah so i'm, I'm just interested in in delving more into the the backstory of the film so you mentioned that, that you had these characters these monsters the boogeyman and hollow jack mm -hmm. and the candy corn scarecrow uh, how did you decide to make the sort of main characters, the protagonists, uh, a group of teens that are, you know, getting ready for graduating high school next year? Uh, you sort of have the 80s coming of age story aspect. Uh, what 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 was it that inspired you to do that? Well, the original storybooks were a group of like 12 year olds. Um, the older I got, the more I was like, I want to turn this was into it. Was it, it uh, not to interrupt you, but, I, you oh. know, when you say like a group of 12-year-olds, I'm, I'm sort of thinking along the lines of like, uh, you know, what was it? The Loser Club in uh, It. The yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it would vary. I mean, after I did, after this movie came out, uh, Stranger Things became a very hot show. And I started thinking like, damn it, I should have just stuck to the kids, you know, because it was like, that's like a solid win. But production-wise... I had done a, a, a 
a narrative drama a few years before that. And I worked with kids and, you know, there's, they always tell you that if, if you want to kind of break yourself, making a movie work with children and animals. And uh, I was like, I don't think I could shoot an entire film with little younger kids for this, you know, not only that, but the fact that I wanted to turn it into an 80s slasher, they had to at least become, you know, older teenagers to have like a sex scene and stuff like that, that does all the little tropes that you want to see in a slasher film. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm glad we did change that because I wanted to tell a story and you exactly said the words coming of age of two characters that are buddies and what it's like to see them start at one end of the spectrum at the beginning of the film. And by the end, they've changed, but they changed on their own terms. You know, Sam no longer wants to be the Halloween guy. He's kind of done with it. And Josh has kind of accepted uh, the role his father had in his life. And he, and he's willing to, uh, to go back to that now. And he's kind of, he's kind of maybe ready to be like his father, you know, which in the beginning of that, they were not in that, you know, and, it, and that's the, that's the story arc of, of any movie. You kind of follow the pattern, but I wanted to do that in a, in an 80 slasher flick as well. Um, but yeah, the, the part with the kids, it would have been, it would have been cool to have done it the original way, but it definitely wouldn't have been uh, as tropey as, as we could go. You know, it would, it would have been probably more monster squad, like, you know, uh, so, which is a, another influence for me, for sure, on the film. So, the basic gist of the first movie is you have mm -hmm. uh, Sam and Josh, the resident Halloween pranksters, who cause much anger uh, when it comes to Halloween, especially for Mrs. Barnhart, who is the resident Halloween hater of the town. Uh, they yeah. decide they're going to go to a concert. They get detoured and end up at this deserted barn. Uh, along with their friend, Michelle. And, you know, it goes from there. So I'm curious, uh, did the story start differently and did it evolve as you uh, were developing the movie or did it sort of stay, stay the same throughout? It it pretty much stayed the same throughout as far as the story. Uh, when we had to go back and do reshoots, that's when things got a little hairy uh, and we had to become creative because we didn't have all the cast together anymore. Um, because when we did wrap the first time, we everybody knew that the film wasn't finished. Uh, we didn't make the production time. There was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that I kept the cast unaware of just to make sure that like they didn't bail. But uh, we ended up getting into winter happened early that year. Like it happened um, like beginning of November. And the outside stuff was scrapped because of snow. I was exhausted. I was done. Uh, my dreams of making this awesome film were out the window. I just kind of hated myself for even attempting it. And I just wanted to quit. So I kind of told everybody, I said, look, we've, we've, we've come to the end of the production schedule. Let's all break for the holidays. We'll recoup afterwards, you know, regroup afterwards and kind of discuss how we can finish this. That's when the stuff came with Zane, where he asked, he, he hit me up and was asking how it was looking. And I was like, dude, like a quarter of what we have is maybe salvageable. And I don't even know how to, to go any further with this, <laughs> you know, other than starting over, which is like, how are you going to do it? The budget's gone, you know, um, thankfully all the people that wanted to be there because of the content of the film, the story behind the film about how it was a, a passion of mine 
I, I approached them because of Zane saying like, Hey, I'll come back. I'll help you do this for free. Let's just finish it and make it the way you want it. All you got to do is convince everybody else to come back and help too. Like all the actors I already paid. So that was probably the hardest part of, of that, of that first movie for me was uh, revisiting all the actors that kind of thought things were good and it might get finished and then telling them like it was real bad. <laughs> and uh, we're, you know, that was a good trial run guys. Now let's do it for real. Uh, kind of situation but that was all thanks to zane because i would have never had the, the motivation or confidence to to do that um would you agree zane yeah, yeah. but i mean it's also a testament to what you were doing because i said like you said i i if it wasn't good i don't think they would have came back or if they didn't believe in like if it was uh just a piece of crap you know or just what I mean, I guess I was gonna say like a bunch of kids going to the woods. I guess it is a bunch of kids going to the woods, but it's you can tell there's a difference. Like there's there's a mythology you built. There's a there's a care to it. It wasn't just like let's get these kids out here. Oh no, it's the guy in the hockey, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. A story built to it. There was a look. There was a design to everything. It had a certain mm -hmm. uh, feel. Um, the characters were written uh, written really well. Um, I said they and you said they got really good arcs in them. So, yeah. And and that was another thing too, when you're, you're asking about, did it change a lot? Uh, I would say my minute little things as far as cast goes that once the cast got together and I actually saw them, uh, they spent a lot of time in their trailer waiting for things to go right before they came to set. They actually started to click. And, uh, once I saw that, I started kind of realizing more that I, I have likable characters because of the actors themselves. And, um, it was to the point where, you know, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, the, the black guy is one of the, the die, dies first. And that was one of the tropes we wanted to do. But man, he was such a good actor and so fun on set and, you know, likable that I told him after we wrapped his scene, I was like, dude, I wish we wouldn't have had to kill you uh, first now because I would have just completely, you know, skipped that trope and, and, and made you live if I would have known how awesome of a person you were, you know, and, you know, uh, I would have kept until the end. But like little things like that changed along the movie as the people got involved and I saw more passion come into it or they were like, hey, this is cool how we did it the first time. But what if we made it bigger now that we're reshooting it and have some more fun with it? So, you know, little tiny things there. Uh, nothing that kind of got uh, changed a lot in part two during the pandemic when it was kind of like problem solving. So one thing I wanted to talk about when I first heard about the barn Mm -hmm. I passed up on seeing it for a little bit and forgive me for that, but it was because I, I had seen the hype around the movie and I saw that in the cast, you had the uh, two familiar faces for fans of the horror genre, uh, mm -hmm. Linnea Quigley as the aforementioned Miss Barnhart, who yeah. uh, really, really hates Halloween and <laughs> is afraid of demons and zombies and ghouls. And also <laughs> Ari Lehman, uh, who yeah. people may or may not know, he was the first Jason in Friday the 13th, you know, the, the Jason that jumps out of the water at the end of the movie. Uh, so the reason I said I was hesitant at first is, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a time where you would see all these movies that would come out with different horror movie stars, and they were sort of like convention movies. Well, like uh, it's It still kind of happens. <laughs> right, 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 right. You would have movies uh, with these uh, horror movie sort of stars uh, and they would basically film these scenes with them at the convention and then find a way to insert it into the plot. And for a long time, uh, I was like, oh, the barn is, is it going to be one of those movies? Um, yeah. And I was pleasant, pleasantly surprised to see that it wasn't. 
what I wanted to ask you was, uh, how did Linnea and Ari Lehman get involved? And were, were you worried about it being uh, perceived as one of those like, oh, they're putting some horror movie stars in. This is just going to be some kind of cash in for the horror movie crowd. Well, were you worried about that at first or? Not so much. I was worried about not having anybody involved um, just because I was trying to figure out a way to recoup the money. And I wanted to have at least a name or two, you know, or, or something that the horror community could go like, OK, they got somebody in it. You know, um, the more I started searching for people that were interested in those kind of you know, films, that's exactly like convention movies. I started seeing other filmmakers going to conventions, pulling them aside, shooting something like at the hotel. And I was like, well, that's not possible <laughs> for this, you know, because I want them to actually be in the movie with our sets and with our characters to some degree. Um we are reached out to Linnea Quigley from the get go. Uh, her camp did not respond. So I was super bummed because I wrote that role specifically for her, but we had to continue the movie. So we filmed with one of the uh, people on the production team. So we actually filmed that whole scene with, uh, with one of the co-producers at the time and she did a good job, but it wasn't, it, it sucked because I wrote this in, you know, a part that in the event of a sequel, there'd be a much larger part. So I was kind of like, oh, man, but now I, I got to keep it in the story because it's it puts the story into effect with what happens between Sam and Josh and, and Barnhart. Um, we filmed most of the movie and then Zane and I were going to conventions and promoting it, putting, you know, promoting the poster, promoting the merchandise. because We did this big merchandise thing to kind of like um, be seen. And we actually went to this convention, not to film anybody, but but to introduce ourselves. And I went to the convention specifically to meet Doug Bradley. And I wanted to approach him for Dr. Rock. And because uh, I'm like, man, he's in head himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I and I thought I saw him in a movie called Scream Park that was shot in Pittsburgh. And I was like, if he did this, he'd probably do something else like in the area. Um, so I went up to him. I said, hello. I didn't tell him what I wanted. I just kind of like gauged how he, how he acted and everything. And then I stuck around and I watched one of his uh, panels. And the more I sat there and listened to him talk uh, and the things he had to say and how he kind of held himself, I was like, there is no way if I walk up to him and say, Hey, do you want to play a, a, you know, a former rock and roller that's now a radio VJ uh, called Dr. Rock and be a buffoon to some degree on camera that he would be like, yes, I'd love that role. <laughs> so I was kind of like, uh, yeah, dude, I went back to Zane and I said, I, I don't think I, I'm even going to waste my time approaching him. Cause he's probably going to laugh at me or shoot me away. And Zane had said, uh, well, you want to just pick up the story Zane? Cause I yeah. Mean, yeah. So I had seen that Ari was there and I knew that Ari he was recently in things and I, I knew this, so I knew he was doing acting gigs and he looks like how I am at, like he just has that look of, I thought like a DJ type guy. And I told Justin, I said, maybe we should get Ari and try out. So we went over to his table and I'm like, how's he even going to like, you know, like receive this. I was going <laughs> to say it kind of made sense to go to him too, because I think he has his own metal band, right? First yeah. Jason. Yeah, yeah, go, yeah. go on though. I'm sorry for interrupting. That's oh, all right. So so then we started explaining the character to him. And we're like, 
Yeah, it's this. Yeah, it's this guy. He's like a like a washed up kind of like a rock and roll guy. Is a show now. He's, you know, that's where he gets his. Uh, I would say he's washed up, but like he's. I would say if he's a DJ, he's probably not doing as much as he was. So he's this guy, sort of like uh, was like Howard Hessman and uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. I thought it was a character like that. Mm-hmm. I'm explaining this to him and. Uh, just out of the blue, just from explaining what the character, he just starts going, I, I'm, Do- I'm Dr. Rock. I'm Dr. Rock. And I'm like, apparently he's Dr. Rock. So <laughs> that's how he pretty much became Dr. Rock. Yeah. And, and it was really um, like from that moment on, he was like, you know, when are you thinking about filming? And I said, I just, I got to figure out dates and I'd have to figure out like logistics of getting you back. And he was like, in one month, I'll be back at Pittsburgh doing a show. He's like, if you can have the set ready to go and every and everything, I'll come do my show, and then the next day we'll spend the whole day shooting the scene. So that's what we did. We had we had one month to get everything prepared, and we ended up we built that set. What was that place called where we, we built the set? This, we went to this place. I, I'm not quite sure what it was. I I used to rent a place out of there. It, it was like a paint. It, it's a I think it's a paintball building now or something, but it was this old building with like these huge doors that you could go in and there was like individual like like rooms that were big and people were renting out these and it was almost like a storage um is how the setup kind of was like yeah like like a big storage unit section thing but like there were more rooms than it was like they basically i think might have been old school or something and they just kind of turned it into this like thing where like people could rent these individual rooms out. There's a long hallway, and in the in the hallway it was just kind of like a, it, it just looked like crap. Like you could see the ceiling with the wires and stuff. But we brought all the stuff over and we made like a um, we want to call it like a like a like a round robin kind of like <laughs> there was a shower. I think it was like a shower. Yeah. Maybe? And that's where we made the drive like the 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 room where he's watching t- the TV like the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And then we made like a video Eric corner. And then we made like uh stations as we made like stations We had the main set of his show. Then there was like this area where we had this dude bring in a motorcycle and we shot like part of a video that was like supposed to be one of his videos. And just, and we just that day, just to make sure we just sh- jumped around to each, uh, each station and knocked it out pretty quick and had them done. Yeah. So that, that was surprisingly, uh, uh, relatively easy getting Efficient. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like we got it all done in one day, and it was nice because yeah. he, you know, it, you know, it was cheap as as far as like not having to pay for all the travel and accommodations because he was already there, yeah. and he was super awesome to work with. Um, now to get back to Linnea, once the film was wrapped and it started the film festival circuit, uh, we started getting a lot of attention online. Uh, we started winning awards. It wasn't too long after that. I think the movie, I think we premiered the movie in October. We did the first film fest in May. And by end of July, her camp contacted me and was like, hey, sorry, we missed your, you know, your email, like, you know, two years back. Uh, Linnea has heard about the film. She'd love to be involved if you're still thinking about her. And we were kind of like, well, I mean, we're on a tour already. Like the film's wrapped. But I was like, I wrote this for her and if she wants to be a part of it, then I will go back and we'll, we'll fix this. Cause I mean, why, why wouldn't we right now while people are talking about it? So we got everything negotiated with her people. She flew into Pittsburgh and we actually rebuilt 
Sam's Garage at Robert Morris University. In a, in a college, like in their uh, little soundstage area. Yeah, because I was a former student there. So we and Zane knew knew uh, one of the the workers there. So we kind of like kind of like came out on both ends. It was like, hey man, she's flying in. She's gonna be like ten minutes away from the school. If we could build a setup here, it'd be so much easier to get her in and out. We only have her for a day. So that's what we did. We went back, we rebuilt the set, brought back the actor for Sam, reshot uh, just that scene, and then inserted it into the film. Um, so like only only the people who ever went to the film festivals or like the premiere ever saw the original. The lady. Yeah, with the original Barnhart that was in it that ended up getting removed. What do you think it is about... You know, I know there's a few uh, 80s scream queens out there, you know, uh, Brink Stevens, I'm a big fan of, Michelle Barr, yeah. but Linnea Quigley is like the definitive 80s scream queen for me. Maybe it's just because she was in um, movies like Night of the Demons and <laughs> Return of the Living Dead. Uh, yeah. So, and, and those were bigger than maybe some of the ones yeah, that Brink and- Yeah, like what I would consider like better mood. Like, yeah. She, well, she also landed like, iconic roles like it's like her dancing nude on the gravestone and return living dead that's always like everyone remembers that putting the the lips yeah yeah and her boob and neither dean like she even like if you go back to like say something oh. like deadly night she was like impaled on the deer antlers like she always was able to get these like these iconic scenes that stuck out in movies that people remembered a lot yeah i mean plus she had the workout video too you know the photos of her holding the chainsaw doing the workout video I mean, she she had a lot of marketing for herself. Yeah, yeah, I guess she did have that sort of marketing. Uh, yeah. I've always been a big fan of her, like more um, more like ultra low budget stuff from the 80s, like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and uh, yeah. Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Bullarama. Uh, so mm-hmm. I was very pleasantly surprised to see her in the barn. Uh, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about this movie is that, and I was telling Zane about this earlier, it seems like with a lot of sort of indie slash cult genre movies now, we've moved past the sort of phase that we were in in the 2000s where everyone was trying to ape Tarantino and Rodriguez's movie Grindhouse and doing these Mm -hmm. homages to 70s drive-in type movies. It seems like now we're in this period of people trying to make movies that look and feel like an 80s film. I was telling Zane about one I saw recently called The Bloody Man uh, with mm-hmm. Tuesday Night from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And I was shocked because it looked like an 80s movie, just the the yeah. way the film looked itself. And I think that was even more true with The Barn. It felt very 80s slash early 90s. How did you achieve that look for the film? Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's multiple layers to that. There was locations uh you know going going to some locations that actually still were stuck in that time period really helped um but then the sets the costuming uh 100 the lighting you know Watch zane, this, zane yeah, and i have watched yeah we've watched so many movies that it's like there's a there's a style of lighting for those kind of films compared to you know today or even 20 years back that you know started to change uh so it's like that mood lighting um, the camera work, I mean, you won't, you'll see a lot of stuff on like a tripod is not so much shaky cam that came later when Blair Witch came out and stuff like that, or action films nowadays that the cameras always on someone's like a shoulder rig, uh, you know, and there's a lot of, uh, uh, dollies and, you yeah. know, jibs and stuff like that. But, um, 
but it was it was the way of like looking at these films and really studying them and going like what what is what are things that stand out that makes it look this way you know compared to now but then there also was the process of post-production too yeah go ahead zane i was gonna say and don't forget the one the major thing in fact you caught it i think um the prior dp had a one or two shots in there if you're not careful you'll get that digital look on the camera where it's the shutter speed where i remember when they're moving and you can tell oh yeah like saving private ryan yeah you can (laughs) tell there's like there's a digital movement so yeah yeah. i was gonna say i i I, you know i said i said earlier filmed but you guys did do it was digital right it It wasn't filmed yeah yeah Correct. And I said, that's why you got to be careful on those digital cameras. Cause if you're not on the right shutter speed or whatnot, it'll, uh, you'll get like a, like a, almost like a, a tracing when someone's moving and it doesn't have like in film, you don't have that unless you like really mess with the, the film stock or the, uh, the shutter. And I said, a lot of movies I knew back in the digital age when they, when they first started shooting on digital stuff, you could tell it has that look just the way people mm-hmm. move. There's like, it's like a jittery, like look to, especially like fast movement. And I think there was one that he pointed out. I remember you pointed it out after you had the one edit done. You're like, yeah, it was, it was, it was, that. It's it, a, when they're walking down to the barn, it's the daytime stuff. Yeah. yeah Cause the there barn. was no, um, yep. yeah, there was no uh, ND filters put on the camera. So he was, he was knocking it. He was, uh, you know, changing it to take care of the light, but then it made them look crazy. you know what are nd filters for people that are unfamiliar neutral density filters the you screw them on the end of your lens so it uh you don't have to mess with your uh your shutter or your uh iris too much it already knocks because there's so much light coming in from the sun neutral density because there's sometimes uh if you don't have the neutral density you won't be able to knock your uh your exposure down to where it's proper you're gonna still still be blown out yeah. Yeah. So with, without an ND filter, you're you're kind of screwed on a really bright like summer, say sunny day. Uh, you're going to definitely need an ND filter on there. Some cameras have them built in, but I think a lot of them are more like it's a you can buy it separate and just screws on the end of your lens. Yeah. That that specific camera did that model did not have the built in one, unfortunately. So. Yeah, I was going to say another um, recent movie that I remember. I think it may be out by Scream Team releasing as well, along with the Barn movies is. Um, uh, I think it's Dude Bro Massacre Part Three. That's another movie that looks yeah. very '80s. So I'm fascinated yeah. by this trend, and I'm wondering. You mentioned having to do stuff in uh, post production. Yeah, uh, you know, with these '70s grindhouse sort of tributes. Obviously, people go into the you know uh, post production phase and do little filters and whatnot to make their mm-hmm. their look uh, to be more in line with like those '70s grindhouse films. What do you do in post though with a movie that's trying to look like an '80s maybe VHS film? Well, I mean, we did multiple layers to it. There was like the grunge to it. There was the the actual film grain, which we used film stock grain that wasn't like a digital grain. Um, there's little things you do, like um, we did camera shake uh, to the to the image enough that like whenever you had a, or, or even flicker. That like when you watch a movie at the drive-in or the way they used to be projected, you would see the Im- the image flicker um, to give it that, uh, you know, like a, it's something that's different than just watching the actual uh, raw footage, you know, that you don't see. Um, once you start adding those on, it starts changing the color. So then you start messing with the color more. But then also you look back at the, the VHS, VHSs that we all rented, a lot of the color was desaturated. So, you know, I we specifically put all the characters in bright costumes so that they wouldn't get lost in the dark 
because we also knew that in post-production, those colors were going to decrease a little bit. That's why Sam and Josh are in yellow and orange and, you know, uh, Michelle is in pink, Russell's in bright red, you know, uh, Nikki, Nikki has orange on her and stuff like that. Cause we knew the movie was going to be like 90% shot, if not 95% shot in dark lighting. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like it may be a little more complicated, uh, getting down that sort of 80s 90s vhs video rental look than that whole you know 70s grindhouse look that a lot of people were doing well the 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 thing with grindhouse too is they took the actual film stock and they damaged the you know the actual print to do that you know they were scratching it and do all kinds of stuff i mean you can't we can't do that when we can't we don't have it you know when it's a file so yeah yeah i just meant though i I meant that like there's films that have come out since grindhouse like low lower budgeted movies that just they apply like a grindhouse filter that well that's that's the thing i i'm sure justin because he he did the law he did all the posts on the uh when that was you can't just take with a lut or a filter and throw it over everything because different parts will have different needs different attention because if you throw it over the end, because that's like a big people, but that's the lazy man's way of doing just throwing it all over everything. I mean, you really have to go through every scene and make sure, okay, this scene's brighter than this. So I can't do this. I got, you know, it's always different. Like anyone who does color grading and that will see that, that you can't just throw one look over everything and it's going to all look great. You have to go in there and like fine tune it and stuff. And if you watch the movie, you'll see like we did, um, certain scenes are more heavily grained up than others. Uh, and then you'll also see like cigarette burns because the first movie was supposed to be more of like a lost drive in film as where the second movie is more of like a, uh, you know, a VHS, like a, 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 a VHS type find. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like it, it, it has the same feel, but it's not as I'd say grungy as the first movie yeah. was. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it is it's pre-planning, knowing how you're going to light it and what the, the final outcome is desired to be, but then having the ability to alter it in post and, you know, give it that final look. How, how long uh, does the post-production process take? Uh, like, um, like, if you were to look at both the barn and the barn two, how long did it take for each? Um, Well, I mean, there's... If I if I could condense, I'll take out all the factors that slowed it down. I would say it probably took about two or three months to edit, and then I did about a month of sound, month solid sound design, like every single day, like twelve hour days, uh, working on it. Um, and I'd say probably about the same for the second movie. The problem is, is that you know we I'll edit stuff as it goes along uh anymore like so the barn too like we would shoot a scene and then like the next week i'd start putting it together to see if we're good after all the problems i had on the first movie um but but the editing process for the barn too probably took uh i mean because the movie took almost four years to complete Uh, you know it, it was spanned over at least a year of editing like totally we had chunks here and there and it was picking up pieces and all that but I, I, you know, ideally, I would say if you have everything shot, you can within a six month window, you can have it all done in post production. If you're working at it steadily and you have everything complete, we were filming shots the week it was going to premiere. Yeah, <laughs> we're like a crowd, a crowd of zombies. So when the barn uh, debuted, when it first came out, uh, I yeah. think it debuted at uh, Bright Night Theater Film Festival, right? 
Uh, yeah, I think that was the very first one. Was the Friday Night one up in Canada? Yeah, in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, so what, what was one. the response to it like? And was it that response that led you to say, hey, let's do a second movie? Um, the response was good. It was a very small crowd. I mean, maybe like a maybe like 75 or 100 people. Um, and it was the first time that we showed the film outside of our hometown, you know, yeah. of Pittsburgh. So it was really like, uh, this is going to be the real response from people now that don't know us, you know, that don't have any, even if they don't like it, they're not going to say like, Oh, good job. And all that stuff. Um, but afterwards I had a merch table set up of like posters and the board game and, and vinyls and stuff. And people came out and they bought it all up. And, um, and then they talked to us about it, how much they enjoyed it and what, you know, reminded of them and talking about how, like, you know, this was probably the closest thing they had seen to like Grindhouse that actually got it right, you know, and it felt like a true like lost movie. And so that gave us more confidence to continue putting it into film festivals and all that. But I will say, and I, and in Zane, you know, he can back me up on this. People would ask about a sequel immediately. And I was like, there's not a shot in hell. I'm making a sequel. Like that was the furthest was- thing away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it happened every screening, every convention, somebody would come up or multiple people would come up and they'd say, so when's the barn part two? And I'm like, never. Uh, Dude, how could you, how can you say that? You you drew yourself into a corner. You had a you had like a cliffhanger ending because because you didn't go through the experience he did to the first movie. <laughs> it, was pretty, it was pretty rough. It was yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, so put it this way: when I when I started the movie, I had to quit my job to make the movie. So I had to sit down with my wife and basically say, "Hey." Uh, I want to make this movie, which, you know, uh, I've always wanted to make this movie. So, you know how much of it means to me, but to do this, I'm going to have to quit my job. And that means you're going to have to be the sole income, you know, while the movie's being made. Uh, I'm going to leverage a bunch of things, including our house, Uh, you know, and it was like, you know, it was kind of like, I want you to agree on this, but even if you don't, I'm still going to do it. (laughs) Kind of a, I I would call it like a a quarter life crisis or something I I was going through of like, I got to make this movie. And I was so, I felt so um, confident that it would be something, uh, maybe not a blockbuster, or like, you know, a, a, a sensational thing that, you know, but I was, I was confident that there would be a crowd for it. And I kept telling her, I said, if I don't make this movie, I automatically fail. I said, now, if I make the movie and it doesn't sell or anything, then, then I fail. And I, and then I learned a lesson, you know, and you know, that's on me, but I'm really confident about this movie. Well, when that movie fell apart, I was sick to my stomach because, you know, everybody else is there. They're making, they're getting paid something. At the end of the day, they get to leave. They get to move on to another project. But for me, I'm sitting there going, I do not have a a finished project that I can even sell a DVD copy of to make $20 back of this 30, 30 plus thousand dollar movie now uh, with all the problems that happened. And I was in a super deep depression. And when, uh, I mean, like super, super deep, I've never been so depressed in my life. Cause I was just like, wow, I messed up. I, I fucked up, I basically say, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I hid it from everybody except for my wife. She was the only person I was like truthful with. I was like, I, I, I'm so sorry. Like you should have talked me out of making this movie. What, what a nightmare this was. And all I wanted to do was make this childhood dream come true. But when Zane called me, he called me out of the blue. I thought, he was calling me to like check in to see if like all the problems that went down on set, like were effective. 
<laughs> and he was going to go back for the report and be like, we got him. Um, but I was surprised that his phone call was, was genuine about checking on the movie and seeing like how it looks and what's next. Uh, so I always tell people this, if it wasn't for Zane contacting me uh, and really making me find confidence in myself again and confidence in the project, I would have never completed it. And I probably wouldn't even make movies today. Oh, Zane. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I believe it. It was, it, it was, yeah. it was good. I, I knew, I, in fact, I, when we, when we were filming it, like, you know, we came back, we were filming again. I told him, I said, yeah, I believe in it. Whereas I say, it, I said, I think you got some good things. Cause I saw the poster. He had the poster made then. Mm-hmm. I said, three things you can do to make me watch this movie. I go, do you have a concept? And yeah, the concept's cool. It takes place on Halloween, which I love that and the monsters and everything. I was like, you got a good poster. Yeah, it looks pretty awesome. I said, your third thing is you got to have a good fucking trailer because if you don't have a good trailer, as soon as I see, I'm like, this looks like shit. I'm not watching this. But he had all of it. And I said, I haven't told him before. He had he had shot him. He had pretty much everything in his movie I've ever wanted to shoot was in that movie. Like when to shoot in a graveyard and in a roller skating rink and in a barn, like all these different places. I was like, this is, has everything. So... But yeah, no, it was cool. It was a good project. And I said, I didn't want to see it fail, especially since we put so much work into it already. I was going to say, you guys really did put a lot of effort into this because you had, you know, I mean, I've seen a lot of independent horror films that it feels like they don't invest much into having, you know, a crew that does different things. This movie has like set decorators, costume design. You had a good makeup department. Uh, In the second movie, you have Joe Castro, uh, who's yeah. brilliant with creature effects. So how important was it for you to assemble a uh, competent sort of crew to deal with all these different aspects of the film? Very well, important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it always is. Uh, the thing is, is it's it's hard finding people that, one, you know, they want to do it and they understand that it's not going to happen in a few hours. Like, we're going to probably be here all day. Uh, and then we're going to be back tomorrow and do it again. Uh, so you have to start becoming friends or family with these these people. And if you're not like minded and you're not clicking, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say the success part and the, the part that made me want to revisit the barn part two was. We went and reshot the barn part one. And once we eliminated the people that weren't there for the, you know, because they wanted to be here because they were only getting paid to be there. The people that stuck around were the people that made me want to continue making movies. And when the question kept coming up about making a sequel, I was like, I have a a crew that I'm confident in, you know, that I can go to Zane and say, you know, I, I, I can trust him to run the camera and do this. I can trust this person to help build the sets. I can trust this person to help me with the costumes and, uh, and it wasn't just so much on my shoulders as it was the first movie when everything was falling apart and it was like I was scrambling to fix it all on my own. But the the crew is key. You know, nobody can do it on their own. You have to have a solid crew and, and the, the crew has to want to do it, too. Can you talk a little bit more about, I guess, the trials and tribulations of this type of indie filmmaking? I think we mm-hmm. gave a hint that, you yeah. know, making these can be a nightmare. But my listeners are always interested in you know, the nitty gritty of how uh, an indie film is made because it can be really difficult. I don't know if you oh, want yeah. to go first, Zane or, or Justin. Well, um, you want to talk about the first movie? Yeah, okay. if we can. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to make you revisit the traumatizing nightmare <laughs> of having to film it. But, uh, PTSD. Um, well, uh, I, I, any, you know, after that, I always tell any filmmaker that I, I speak to that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Be prepared for that. Yeah. Don't, you know, you can sit there and you can have a fancy book that's scheduled for whatever your shoot is. If it's 14 days, 20 days, 30 days, and you can have every single hour blocked out for that day, what everybody's doing. Uh, and it can look great on paper, but all it takes is one person to be that domino effect to knock it all down and everything goes off schedule. And, you know, you're hours behind on a 12 hour day. Um, the other thing is shooting in Pittsburgh. I mean, as you probably experienced this week, uh, it's March, but it was 70 degrees and then it'll be like 35 tomorrow or something. Um, you know, we shot a fall film in the fall going off the previous year of like, oh, we're probably going to have like a late fall again into like yeah. end of yeah, anything in summer type thing into the end of November. And then it's, it snowed in November. And when we shot in October, you know, those kids are running around in the cornfield fighting monsters and it's 17 degrees and I've got them in t-shirts. Sure. Uh, you know, we're behind the camera and we've got like parkas on. <laughs> <laughs> with hot hands and everything we're all warm uh but they're out Rolled there the you know, ground, dying, yeah. basically and like and being like can i please get back into a heated car you know because we're out in the middle of the woods and um it's it's just a lot that you can prepare yourself for but the situation can change at any at any moment you know um and that's why i tell people like you know i think anymore we try to shoot a movie within two years but anything can happen. And, and just the, with the sequel with COVID, you know, who would have thought a pandemic would come through and stop the world and then change the world and, and all that. Um, but I, I, you know, we, we, we talk about like, you know, we don't want movies that look like shit I means, you know, and we're also comparing ourselves to other movies, but I always tell, I tell filmmakers this, you know, I think that as long as you put the effort in, even if your movie doesn't look perfect, that's kind of the stuff, you know, the barn isn't a perfect film by any means. And people will tell me that they're like, it's not perfect. It has issues, but there's a charm to it. And the charm is that everybody that was on that set, making that movie loved what they were doing. And they knew they were making a fun movie. It's not a scary movie. You know, it's a horror film, but it's a fun popcorn movie, you know, that like, you know, I, like, like we were talking about earlier, like night of the demons, uh, Movies like that, like uh, Neon Maniacs, you know, Trick or Treat, you know, with Sammy Kerr. It's those kind of films that you can tell that the subject content is fun and the people behind the camera were having fun with it, too. So I was going to I just wanted to add real quick um, and yeah. saying I want you to give some stories about uh, sure. your experience as a DP. But before we get to that, one mm -hmm. of the things that I think is interesting about The Barn and also The Barn Part 2 is I think a lot of people that try to make a, you know, sort of indie low budget horror movie these days goes this, they go in this direction of saying, oh, I'll just make one of these like so bad it's good movies. And I'll try to do that very intentionally. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, every time oh, people wow. try to do that, it doesn't work. That's and I, I love, I, I was going to say, I love that the barn and the barn too it doesn't try to be like some type of like oh look at us we're making it so bad it's a good movie it's just a fun little horror movie made on you know a tight budget but mm -hmm. it's respectable yeah 
Because I, I go with what Justin said. Like, when you do this stuff, you start realizing like, you look at other movies, you go, does my movie even remotely look like this? And you can tell them lighting like this looks like garbage. Like, we even had in the first barn, there's a scene where this one demon thing gets its head, it originally got its head chopped off. We reshot that three times because the first <laughs> time didn't look good, second time didn't look good. And then we kind of re we revamped it. We said this this chopping the head thing off isn't working. So we third time we went out, we kind of restructured it and it looked even better. It, it was it was even better than what we, you know, what we originally were thinking. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole thing is just sit there and like don't be afraid to criticize yourself and be like, look, I'm putting this out. Um if I were watching this, am I gonna sit there and be like, oh this is fine. Or you're gonna be like, no, it's not fine. It's it's it has to be a little better, you know. It's just have a little have a little pride in what you're putting out, not just like you said, like, oh, I'm gonna make something bad on purpose because I'm just gonna get off in the merits, like, oh, I made it bad on purpose. Like, that that doesn't yeah. man, that's that's a lazy man's way out of uh of making something. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um and we and we did that a lot, like, you know, especially because we came back and we had to fix a lot of the effects ourselves. Yeah. Uh, we started thinking of like you know, we don't know exactly what we're doing, but we know that people don't want to just see an extreme close up of something that's, you know, a squishy blood or something because you can't show a head or but we found ways to make it work and then make it creative, you know, yeah. with what we had to work with. But at the same time, we were like, this doesn't need to look ultra realistic because it's a it's a movie about man that's a pumpkin with flames in his head so <laughs> you know you know that there is a, a level of like you have to go with it in, in this kind of film you know uh and i think that that's also what makes it fun is that the movie is just enough serious but doesn't take itself too serious you know that it's like preaching or anything like that um it's trying to say like i'm a you know i'm a, I'm a legit horror film you know, we also told the actors when I met them, I was like, here's here's the movies to go watch, you know, watch these movies, see how these people talk, see how they act. Try to emulate this kind of thing, because this is what the movie's supposed to look like. You know, what were some were, of the movies you made them watch? <laughs> um, Night of the Creeps, Night of the Demons. Um, I'm trying to think. Definitely the Monster Squad, just just because I needed the leads to understand, like fighting, you know, the wanting to fight monsters type stuff. I was going to say there is like a strong uh, Fred Decker vibe uh, to this movie. You know, I I could see the influence from Night of the Creeps and the Monster Squad. Um, Yeah. Return of the Living Dead. um, Fright Night. Fright Night. Yeah. So I was telling him, like, you know, look, look at how they act, because I can go back and watch these movies and go, oh, man, that's not the best acting. But I get caught up in the film that it doesn't bother me because it's that world they created. And uh, I think that you have to understand the kind of, you know, uh, era that these films came came out of to see what we were trying to emulate. Because if you were, a, a say, a 17-year-old or 20-year-old kid today that never watched this stuff, you might watch The Barn and be like, well, that was fucking stupid. <laughs> and, like, it was, it, was, uh, it was dumb and the acting was horrendous. But you got to understand it was trying to be a film like that you know without being a spoof this wasn't like you were saying dude bro party massacre that's a spoof on 80s horror films like the barn is not you know so then uh getting into uh well first before we get into the barn part two uh when it comes to the first barn uh what do you find people uh think of the monsters like what 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 do people say their favorite monster is in it is in it 
Is it the Boogeyman, Hollow Jack, or the Candy Corn Scarecrow? I would say they usually lean towards Jack. Yep. But, yeah, because because I mean it's ha- it's a Halloween movie. He's got cool flames. He looked cool. Um, but overall, uh, people that watched it that really enjoyed the film they liked the trio concept because there's usually just like one slasher. And I was looking back on movies like Hellraiser, Ghoulies, Neon Maniacs, you know, of like a trio or, or more of monsters that I always thought was cool because it's more of a bigger threat and there's more you can do to have fun. Um, but, you know, it was those people that, that would talk about those creatures. And this, I guess the most specific thing they would say was that your movie had a mythology to it that I really liked that a lot of people leave out and it's more of like, uh, you don't know where these things came from. Why are they here? You basically told the story of this is where these things came from. This is why they're here, you know, in, in the, the hoot nanny. And then people really appreciated that, which also led to me wanting to do more of an origin tale in the sequel, you know, to get into a deeper uh, mythology of the creatures and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's it's been cool as far as that goes i don't really know a lot of people have seemed in the sequel to dig the uh the crow man the the screecher um but it's always it always usually comes back to jack people really like jack see i don't know for me it was always uh i like the boogeyman so the miner which i think you uh-huh. played him in the movie right i did yeah yeah yeah, yeah and i i always like the candy corn your crap. Well, that's, that's good. See, I'm glad. I'm glad they're all getting loved out there. I do. I do like Candy Corn too. He's he's pretty fun. Yeah. Also, uh, I, I don't know if you want to get into this, uh, but what was the budget for the barn and then the barn two? Um, you know, how, how much did you make it on? Are you, are you allowed to talk about that? Or are yeah, you open so to talking first, about it? The first movie uh, came in. I think when it was all said and done after the reshoots and all the problems. It was right around 40,000, but that included like buying all the equipment and all that stuff too. Like, cause we, we bought new equipment and lights and all this stuff. So it was like around $40,000 to make that movie. And then we did about $7,000 in marketing, uh, making, you know, for like the, between the poster, the board game, the video game, the action figures. Like I was going to say, I didn't even know about the board game, but I knew there was a mobile app game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was about seven grand in marketing. Um, so about it, roughly around 47. I would say after fulfilling the perks and the costs of shipping and the cost of the perks not for part two, part two was roughly around the same price. It may, may be just a little bit more but we didn't have problems in part two, like we did part one, you know? Um, so there was a, you know, there was like a, a $15,000, $18,000 that we wasted in part, in, in part one of going back and reshooting stuff that you know didn't happen in part two. Uh, plus it made it a lot easier in part two. A lot of people wanted to just be involved. Like they didn't care. Like they were like, hey, look, you don't have to pay you know, and all, all this stuff. I just want to be in the movie to be in the movie because I'm such a big fan of the first one. Um, so obviously not having to pay huge day rates for some people, but like covering their gas or giving them lodging and stuff like that kept, kept the cost down as well. So we could spend it on effects. Cause if I mean, there's like double the, uh, double the kills in part two and yeah. plus the celebrity cameos increased, which was not cheap. <laughs> So it, it's interesting for me to ask this. Um, you, you said it was on like a, a 40K budget and then maybe 7K for the marketing. 
Yeah. Do you think the barrier of entry for making independent films has changed maybe in the past 10 years? Uh, what, what I mean by that is, you know, I talk to directors uh, like people like Vincent DeSanti, who has been making the uh, Friday the 13th uh, Never Hike Alone fan films. And they look really professional. They look really great. And then he'll yeah. tell me about the budget and people will be shocked that he's able to make a movie on a lower budget that looks that professional. Do you think the whole landscape of indie filmmaking has changed just due to the technology that's out there and the technology people can get their hands on uh, at, you know, usually a reasonable, you know, price if they wanted to get into filmmaking and were serious about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, the camera technology has in the last, yeah, almost 10 years has been incredible. The prices have come down. Yeah, more affordable. Yeah, and more affordable for everybody. But I think the number one thing with a lot of people I meet and they tell me they have like a really small budget and their their movies look like out of this world, it's who you know too. Like uh, if you have access to production houses where you can, as equivalent to what I'm saying about people wanting to join to just be a part of it, there's also people out there who are like, we're friends with you. You can have X amount of days with this equipment for free, you know, give us a credit or we've got these great locations, no charge, you know. So a lot of the the business is who you know and what what you can share and, and get back, um, and I think that that's that's a lot of how you're seeing so many more independent things happening on a bigger, uh, looking much more professional, but not costing as much because there is that base cost if you have all the equipment or you're renting all the equipment or buying the equipment, um, but also the equipment's cheaper now. I remember in 2008 or 2007 when red was coming out the red camera it was unattainable <laughs> when i was in college and it was like oh wow they're shooting these movies on reds you could never afford it well now you any, you know anybody who saves some money up or does a couple jobs you know high paid jobs you could have a red in, you know before too long uh which who would have thought that 10 10 years back so yeah i mean the, the landscape for it has completely changed I feel like, Zane, you may want to add to that because I, I, I saw you nodding your head there about the red cameras and whatnot. Yeah, he's right. Like, it's just, even with phones, man, people can shoot some really good-looking stuff on their phones nowadays. Yeah. Like, it's, and and just because you have, like, nice toys like the red and that, I mean, I've seen people shoot stuff on the red that looks like shit, too. Yeah. So it's just kind of <laughs> understanding your material, your your equipment and understanding how you want to, you, you know, lighting's really important. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, lighting and one thing, Justin, when we started out on the barn was uh, sound. Yeah. Like, uh, I think I told you stories and that about watching movies. And I was like, dude, I can hear that sound like that where you hear that little and it cuts out. And then when they go to talk again, it's like it comes back. And I go, that's a big, uh, that's a that's a big uh, sort of like this guy the amateur like giveaway is like, oh, they don't know how to do their sound and stuff, or they're not even taking the time to, uh, make it sound good. And I said, sounds just as important as anything too. So it's like, you got to take mm -hmm. all your, these factors. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say sound design, I think is really important. Uh, this, you know, I've read articles recently in like mainstream publications about how people are having more trouble now uh, since the age of like digital video um, filmed movies uh, with hearing the dialogue. And I guess just the, the the way movies are done now, 
sometimes the dialogue will be muffled, even in like mainstream films. I'll even hear I'll hear stuff on Netflix where I'm just like, I can't understand what they're saying. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, that to me, it, it takes me out of the movie. I'm like, I want to know what they're I'm saying. Like, and then you yeah. have to pause it and put subtitles on just to yeah. get yeah. one yeah. line. Yeah. I just watched uh, what was that? I just watched the invitation the other night. Same, there was like scenes where they're all talking real low. They're like laying in bed together. I'm like, I can't freaking understand what they're saying. So yeah, it's like yeah, I don't know what they're doing, but I mean, it sounds like fine. It's just mm-hmm. really yeah, hard to hear, like muffled. So how did the barn two come together? Uh, and how did you write the story for it? And uh, just. How did uh, you end up making the barn two, and uh, then we can get into maybe the difficulties of making it uh, during yeah. the pandemic? Yeah, so barn two came about uh, maybe 2018. It had been the 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 premiere of the first movie was at the end of 2015, so this was getting close to the end of 2018. So about three years later, um, the movie had been released for maybe a year and a half at this point. Um, cause I waited a while to do distribution and all that stuff and put it out to the public. Um, but it was the same thing. I'd go to, uh, I do, I go to a screening, I go to a convention, saw the movie and people would come up and be like, barn two, when's it happening? And it's slowly over time, you know, you, you start to forget the bad stuff, like how bad it really was. And you start thinking about like how good it was, like looking at the positive things. And I started looking more at the, how much positive finishing the movie created around me like of meeting new people becoming friends with people who bought the movie and making these relationships over the years i started thinking like maybe i'm willing to go back to the barn and and do it again and um i just kept telling everybody i said the only way it's ever happening because i put myself in such a financial strain i said is if i can crowdfund it and i have no worries because <laughs> I'm not going to like chance my house or anything or credit cards or anything like that again. Like I'm not, I'm done. Um, so we discussed uh, doing a, an Indiegogo and uh, I had pretty much a, a rough draft script with like a, a full treatment to just kind of give out to the, to the cast, the return, you know, returning cast. Uh, and I told them, I said, Hey, are you willing to come back? Um, now, prior to this, I will say, and this is, you know, this is where a little bit of stuff happens because of the pandemic. But prior to this, uh, the guy who played Josh, Will Stout, after the movie wrapped, he moved from Pittsburgh to New York and his career took off um, and it was like going really, really well. So when I reached out to him and, and was talking to him about the potential of doing a sequel, he was like, I'll, I would love to come back and help you do whatever, because it was like his first movie and it kind of helped him get start a career. He said, but I will tell you right now, I there's no way I can come back and be a part of it like I was in the first movie. He's like, I, okay. I have to be more of a cameo. And I was like, I, I was okay. going to say, because it, it was interesting to me that in the barn two, you sort of uh, shift the focus to the character yeah. of Michelle played by Lexi drips. Yeah. So that's, that was like the first, like, okay, well now I know what I'm working with. I know that I can't make a Sam and Josh movie because he's already point blank told me I'll come back for a cameo. Now I didn't realize how small that cameo was going to be after the pandemic. Cause like we had him for one, like one day for five hours, like after, like right after the pandemic happened. Um, so thankfully the way I put it into the script, I was, banking on something like you know it the cameo weekend probably turning into like a day 
but so I didn't put too much into that. Um, but the next part was it was supposed to be a movie that followed both Sam and Michelle. And then the actor who plays Sam, he doesn't act in movies anymore. Uh, he focused in a different career. Uh, he contacted me uh, and it was right after we had done crowdfunding, like the crowdfunding was in going and, you know, and he was like, Hey, there's a possibility that I might not be able to do an entire film. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Cause the way I have it structured, it would be like, you know, you won't be in it the entire movie anyway. And then it was kind of more like, Hey, is there any way I could be a cameo too? <laughs> I was like, I can't make a sequel with just you guys both as cameos, you know? Um, so we came to the point that I was like, I can probably, do something in the story that you will be in it for like a, a quarter of the movie or something, or like, you know, 20 minutes. Um, but the initial, the initial story goal was it to be a Sam and Josh duo, a Sam and Michelle duo looking for Josh. Um, obviously that changed. So what happened was, is I told all these people, like, this is only going to happen if we raise the money. Everybody tells me, I meet that like, if I do something, they'll donate, they'll do all that stuff. I was like, but, I also have people that come up to the, the table sometimes and say like, oh, this looks really cool. I just got here. Uh, I'm going to make my rounds. I'll be back before the end of the day. And I never see him again. So I was like, I'm not going to put too much faith in like everybody, cry, you know, funding this movie. So I think, I think I did a 30 day Indiegogo and like 20 days in or halfway in, it was pretty much to the point of like, it's going to make it like, it's almost there, like just a couple thousand dollars away. And I had to start telling people like, we're going to have to make this movie. And some of the cast was like, what? Uh, you know, like it's really happening. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like they people funded it. The crowd funded it. They really want it. And, what do you um, attribute to the success of the crowd crowdfunding effort? Because I know some I people will say, oh, I've, I've never had success with it. Other people I know have had great success. So just the first uh, movie. The first movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, all all I did was I just put it up and I shared it on my Facebook and Instagram. and then people just shared it everywhere. I mean, I didn't have to do anything other than just say it's up. If you want to be a part of it, this is an all or nothing. If I don't raise the funds, I'm not making a sequel. Like it was pretty much as simple as that. You know, I'm like, it, cause sometimes you'll see people say like, uh, it's a flexible campaign, meaning that we want to raise $15,000, but if we don't, we're still going to make the movie and then they'll raise like five and then they're obligated to still try to make that movie, you know? And they'll say like, well, it's not going to be as good, but, for this one, I was like, I need $40,000 minimum to make to make this movie. And even then, I was still looking at probably around $10,000 from perk fulfillment, shipping, fees, all that stuff. So it was going to be like a $30,000 movie. Um, but all I can all I can say is that it was because there was enough people that had interest in the first movie. Like they kept telling me that they actually came and supported it. And it's that's the only reason the sequel happened was because of the, the, the backers. So uh, the sequel, uh, for people that don't know, follows Michelle as she's recovering from the loss of Sam and Josh, who have, mm -hmm. you know, disappeared. Uh, the ban on Halloween is being lifted and you have a million and one cameos in this yeah. movie. Uh, you know, Linnea Quigley returns in a more um, uh, larger supporting role as Miss mm -hmm. Barnhart. You have Doug Bradley, Pinhead himself there. Uh, mm -hmm. Joe Bob Briggs and Darcy the Milk Girl herself, Diana Prince. And also, I, I noticed people haven't brought it up as much, but you also have Mr. Lobo makes an appearance. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, 
talk about just the getting the cast together because you have a bunch of cameos in this that I really enjoyed. I, I will say um, that's probably the only thing positive uh, that came out of the pandemic was um, it would have only been um, Linnea and Ari returning uh, and, and Lloyd. I did have Lloyd as the, the town hall mayor because the first weekend we finally got together and started and making this movie. Uh, we had all been working on this production studio that we have and uh, building it from the ground up and then finishing it. And then we still had to build sets. So the time was ticking down that these, the, the cameos were coming in because we were filming all of the people who had paid uh, on Indiegogo to be killed in the movie. And I was like, this is going to be the most stressful thing. Let's just get it out of the way. Well, then the stress was also on top of like building the studio, getting it, actually getting it fixed, you know, and, and completely furnished and then building the sets. And like we were uh, till the night of even that morning, we were still finishing things for the for that that big scene. Um, and then we filmed it over a three day weekend to wrap them. And then I took Linnea to North Carolina with me on our way to Days of the Dead Charlotte. And then we shot the scene at the Myers house. Uh, there's like a dream sequence that takes place. There's a guy whose name's Kenny Caperton. He built a replica of Michael Myers house and he invited us down. And that's, that's that house right there. You can go and take tours of it and all kinds of stuff. It's, oh it's my God. I didn't even realize that when I watched yeah, it. If you go back and you go back and watch it, it's Michael Myers house. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's a great, it's a great place. Um, we took maybe like two or three weeks off and we came back and then we shot the drive-in sequences. Um, and then after that, I was burned out again from just this whole year of building a soundstage and prepping for this movie that we, we were all just like, let's take off for Thanksgiving. Let's take off for Christmas. Um, and we'll, re we'll regroup after the beginning of the year. And then we were going to do like, a, I, my goal was get all of the main people wrapped like in a three week stretch and then do a little bit of pickups on the weekends for like inserts and special effects and all that stuff. So we got together in beginning of or either beginning or mid February. I can't remember now um, of 20, I guess it was not, or I guess it would have been the beginning of 2020. I, th I think that I think that's what it was. And um, we filmed the video store scene and we were supposed to get together the following weekend. Well, right after we did that, that's when the pandemic like occurred in the United States. And then we didn't film again for eight months. Um, now I know it's a long way to get to this, to get to your question here, but the, basically everything was at a standstill. Um, and I was kind of like, well, I'm really thankful that I shot these huge group scenes oh, yeah. when I did, because there was no way moving forward. Like as we went through production, there was times where there wasn't more than three or four people, maybe five in a room together and, or in the entire studio because we were all masked up and, and, and everything because of, you know, the fear of getting COVID. Um, so I was like, well, everybody that thought I was crazy to do these big ass scenes, you know, now I'm like, I'm really glad I did because it would have just been cut from the film. Um, but what had happened during that time was nobody got together. There was big crowds, which meant there wasn't conventions. There wasn't uh film fest. There wasn't a lot of things going on. Um, go back to 2018 i had approached joe bob at a convention i was vending uh for a film that zane and i are wrapping up right now called cryptids and 
I told him, I said, we have this movie we'd like for you to be a part of, you know, we'd like to send it to you, have you look at it. And he was like, yeah, here, I'll give you the information of my, my agent. And, you know, so I went up, his agent was actually there and I talked to her, I got the information and man, it wasn't more than like a month or so after that shutter, the shutter show happened and he just exploded onto the scene. And, um, every time I emailed, it was like, John's really busy right now. We're not really sure when he can fit you in. Just keep trying, you know, I'm sure there'll be a point. And so I was kind of like, well, I think we lost Joe Bob because his career has flourished and, uh, and, and now he's, uh, you know, he's unattainable. And it was probably April into the pandemic. His people contacted me and was like, hey, John wants to know if you want to film your that cryptids movie now because he's they're not shooting. They can't shoot the shutter show. All the conventions are canceled. He can't do his uh, how Redneck saved Hollywood tour. Um, basically, what they were saying was is he's available and he probably wants some money <laughs> at this point, you know. And I was like, oh, man, I, I can't get anybody to even be in a room together right now. Uh, plus, we were supposed to shoot in a real radio station, which that wasn't even an option at this point, because I had to restructure a lot of the barn part two later on to be uh, sets because we couldn't get into actual locations anymore. People were like, they didn't want you coming, coming in and giving a chance to get them infected and stuff. So many people. Um, yeah. So we had about a month and we built the set for cryptids, the radio station here in the studio. But part of my terms with them was, you know, I have a, a smaller group of people than I normally would. There's only going to be like three or four of us max. Uh, we can't do it in a day. Like I originally pitched you because of this, it's going to have to be at least two days. And uh, you know, with the, um, I won't get into the stuff, the, you know, the costs, but with the costs that were there, I was just like, if we can wrap early enough, does John agree? Cause we're shooting two movies simultaneously right now. I was like, would he agree to appear in the barn part two? I mean, and it wasn't maybe like two or three minutes back uh, later, I got an email saying like, absolutely. He said, you know, what, regardless, you know, he'll, if, if he's there and you can do it, put him in. Um, cause that's how I met him was discussing, uh, the barn part two at his table and, and talking about movies I distribute and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, he came out, we did that. We put him in. He had such a great time here that he went on to talk to Diana about it. And I had the opportunity to talk to her at the Mahoning fest. And I was like, look, we have, this was later on, but I was like, look, we have one more big scene to do. Uh, if you want to be a part of it, I would love to have you included. And she's like, Oh, you know, John spoke so highly of the set and everybody there that, yeah, I'd love to be a part of it too. Um, so if it wasn't for that little situation there with the pandemic, I wouldn't have got Joe Bob and Darcy, the male girl, but also I would have never got Doug Bradley. Um, 100%. I, I would have, I would have, I would have to imagine just because, uh, it was the same situation reached out, uh, in the middle of the pandemic and shared the script with him. Cause we were pretty much waiting until the end to shoot this stuff. Some of these scenes. And, um, he got back to me, he said, you know, I, I really like the script. It, it's uh, something really interesting to me. I like the character. I like the whole scene. Uh, it would just basically come down to negotiations with his agent. So I talked to the agent, we negotiated. Uh, I think the most selling part to him was that, he lives just right outside of Pittsburgh and to get, to get to the soundstage area, it was like a uh, 45 to an hour 
drive. Um, so he was able to come to set, shoot for five or six hours, and then go home that night and get paid a, a good amount of money. Uh, and he liked the role. So, but he made it very clear while he was there, he was like, you know, this is pretty much only happening because everything shut down, you know, and uh, I'm in this situation of looking, looking for things to do, you know, and you, 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 you hit me at the right time. Like it was like the perfect timing to, to reach out and do this. Cause I'm pretty confident if I would have done it uh, in the, in the early stages, like before the movie actually started shooting, he probably would have said, no, he doesn't have time for it, which, you know, cause you never, you never know with conventions and, and other film schedules, but it, it, it's so, weird because uh, you're sort of implying in a way that, uh, you know, the pandemic, it, it hurt the filming in some ways, but in some ways it was a blessing to get, you know, Doug yeah, Bradley I, I, and I, Joe Bob. I to, yeah, I hate to say like, it, yeah, the, the pandemic blessed me because it was a terrible thing for a lot of people. Um, but what it, what, it, what it did too was I was on a time crunch to make the movie to get it out. Um, when the pandemic happened, we kind of all kind of sat down together and went, you know what? We're behind schedule now because of this. Let's just make a movie that it is as fun as the first movie if not more with the time we have and if it takes a little bit longer it takes a little bit longer because we're behind as it is you know so now that we started throwing in the extra people to play that were already parts in the movie but now we're actually getting people like names to play these parts uh, i was gonna say you also got jason brooks too from the uh Friday the Thirteenth Vengeance movies. Yeah, he was in there. He was um he was Zombie Jesus, and then there's a, a character he plays called Lewis Carlisle. Uh, he was fun, but yeah, and so it was just it was just cool that uh, you know we got so many people involved, and uh, I think probably Zane would agree to this. The pandemic, if if nothing else, it gave us the time to go back and and really amp up special effects, and that was probably the most fun because. Um, there wasn't a lot we could do. Uh, I mean, we shot year round in this it, it, for this movie. So, you know, it, it could be two feet of snow outside, but we were still shooting stuff indoors, like in the sets uh, and going back and revisiting kills and all that stuff. So uh, uh, that's the positive. Um, the negative was when it happened, everybody kind of scattered like cockroaches. You know, they were all like, uh, if they lived close, if they were like um, in New York City or North Carolina or Ohio, they all kind of went back to wherever their bases were for families, which was far away from Pittsburgh at that point, to the point where we had to start discussing like paying for flights to get cast to come back, you know. Um, and and so the trajectory of how you shoot a movie, even though you shoot it out of order anyway was really out of order like we found ourselves shooting very small scenes like the kills that happen in the haunted house you know focusing on that stuff because we didn't have the core cast at the time you know or, or waiting until like people felt comfortable to get into a room when there was going to be like 15 people again or something you know so that was the kind of logistical nightmare so one thing i wanted to get into uh maybe saying you could talk about this a little bit but uh with regards to filming both these movies uh what's the craziest sort of experience each of you had uh working on these two films if there was an incident that stood out to the to you that you can talk about on air but there there was the one night we almost got eaten by wild coyotes <laughs> what yeah <laughs> yeah so we, were, we were down by the the original first barn and uh 
the exterior of that barn isn't the same as what's inside. That that was just an empty shell that we used for the exterior, which is out in the middle of West Alexander, which is just fields and and just farmland and all kinds of stuff. And uh, there's rampant coyotes running around there. So we were uh, outside when I, I think we're wrapping up for the night pretty much, and we were just getting stuff ready. We had a fire set up still going, helping to light. And we were at the, we had to hoof some stuff up this little hill to get to the cars and just as we we're gonna make it go you start hearing these coyotes like not too far off but just making noise and then <laughs> i just want to be an asshole i was like responding i was just like oh and man they were pissed and they started coming fast like you're like they're just like arr, arr. i was like uh and i'm thinking can i kill a coyote with a tripod i don't guess i'm gonna find out <laughs> yeah when they i remember tanya looking at me like oh my god and i'm like yeah i think i might have just killed us <laughs> and, and uh once they got close and they saw the fire and us and they just instantly you could tell they just stopped but whatever whatever i said in that dog language it definitely worked out, definitely worked out with, that's for sure because yeah you, you definitely said some stuff about their mothers yeah something because they were coming fast and hard it was it was a little scary then there was this, that night there was uh same place there was uh this pecker heads up on the hill snuck down and pulled, oh, the, yeah. pulled the the lights off yeah we had a there was these drunk people that were watching us from a distance because uh, like their property was adjacent to the barn. And we're in the middle of filming the opening sequence uh, of the movie with the little kids knocking on the door. So, you know, they're all they're they're acting, but they were genuinely sort of creeped out down there because it is a creepy old barn. Um, but then all of a sudden we lost all the two K's that were shining yeah. everything. And we're like, Oh man, like the generator died or something. But then we could hear the generator. And we're like, what the fuck? and then there was a bunch of tall grass and you could see, like you could see movement in the grass and that's where the two K's were. And then all of a sudden this dude just jumped out and he was like, ah, like that. And he scared the kids, but he pissed us off. Cause we're like, what the fuck, man, you can't just be pulling, you know, pulling yeah, cords out of light and stuff cords out of shit like that and uh he thought it was hilarious like he thought it was real funny until we yelled at him we're like dude you can't fucking do that stuff you know and like we were just like get the fuck out of here <laughs> that was more of like a, a just a nuisance problem of like why why would you do that like what that was what crazy. would possess you other than uh alcohol i guess <laughs> i'm thinking that's yeah. a good idea um but i i think on part two um uh it was like I said, it was more logistical. I don't remember there being any anything. I mean, oh, we wait. did stuff in the woods with. Yeah, I, I got, I got one for part two. This is pretty funny. So, when you're looking at the church, in the oh in the movie, yeah, that's just a facade. It's like it's like those old cowboy movies. Just the front of a. It doesn't open up in anything. You walk up, open the door, and it's pretty much like a cartoon. It's like a drop. <laughs> and, uh, I guess we didn't convey to Linnea that there's nothing beyond there. So the one part she's supposed to run up and go inside and she runs up and just opens the door. And next day she's like, she's grabbed the door handle. She's like swinging on this door. Yeah. Like, just swung back in. Yeah. We're yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Like there's nothing back there. So don't like just grab the door and open it. Like you're going in. Don't actually, 
go into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that very fortunate there that that wasn't a lot worse because if she would have let go of that door handle, she would have fell uh, about three feet have, straight yeah. down. Yeah. But yeah, it was funny. It was funny after the fact. Yeah. I remember. I just remember her yell like, "Ooh!" <laughs> she <just kind> of <laughs> that doorknob. It just like flew like she swung, swung back in. Like, yeah. Pretty epic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think because I mean, it was, it was shot over the course of so many years ago. I remember we had Drew Marvick out and his son for the opening of part two. And we were filming in the woods of beyond the studio. And uh, just as we were getting set up, you just started hearing like, oh, yeah. and we're like, holy shit, trees are going down. Like, but you a couldn't see tree it. just fell in the woods yeah. near us. And like, we were yeah. just, we all just kind of froze. Cause we're like, you know, you hear it, but then we're like, do, do we run? Do we not run? Are we going to run into the tree? Uh, Cause you just had these big, big lights shining down on you you couldn't see up like you just kind of had like the light spots looking up um and then zane was on the ground doing uh close-ups of the fire and one of the logs rolled out it like, just right rolled at, out like right at yeah. like flaming log just rolled out like and just caught the blanket on slightly on a little bit of like a tiny bit of a a grade and yeah once it popped out over it just started rolling down to the blanket i was like jesus christ yeah caught the blanket on fire and stuff and uh yeah I mean, it was. I mean, it was. It was probably more funny, funny things. Yeah, that it wasn't on, like. Yeah, there wasn't not so much devastating. <laughs> uh, it was. Yeah, it wasn't really too much. Yeah, not too much. We usually yeah. much on that one that that time. There wasn't really a lot. Yeah, I, I, I honestly can't look back at two and compare it at all to part one as far as issues. Um, that's that's really fascinating, just because. <laughs> You know, part two was made during the pandemic, but yeah, in a weird yeah. way, it was easier to make. Uh, I guess. I mean, I guess second time you had more experience though as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you know, I felt more confident too uh, that second time around, and I and I was working with a lot of the same cast members, so it was like we had a rhythm. They kind of knew what they were getting into when they got here. They were like, "Oh, it's going to be a long night." Um, I was going to say, it, I'm so glad that you uh, enlarged the role of. Uh, Michelle, because Le Lexi oh. Drips is great in the sequel. Um, and I, I love that she has a sort of different character trajectory in the second movie. It's almost like we're getting uh, a completely new story through her. We're seeing all the events through her eyes rather than Sam and Josh. Yeah. And, you know, that's partially because of the circumstances with actors, but that was also going to be, you know, the original outline as well of, where these characters go is more like or more, more Michelle's story anyway, with Sam attached. It just turned up, it turned into being pretty much Michelle's story uh, with now Heather introduced, which uh, Heather is Sable Grydell. Um, Zane's been working with her for years. And when I got a chance to, to see her in action uh, on 1031 and then forced to fear, I approached her and was like, I want you to be a part of this. And uh, I think you'd be a great supporting role in this film. Now that I'm in that situation of like, it's not, michelle and sam you know i need somebody that's that duo partner for for michelle and and i think heather or sable came in and did a great job and uh but she's familiar with zane and i she's worked with zane for yeah. so long that there was a, a good uh rapport there like you know you like, guys had a chemistry with a lot of these actors yeah, already yeah, which helps. we all know what to expect yeah it's like it's yeah it's like everyone knows to do on set mm -hmm. yeah so gonna... okay go okay. on 
No, I was just gonna say, yeah. So like all, all the way around, like the people behind the camera and in front of the camera, uh, were enjoyable on part two. Uh, everybody in front of the camera in part one was enjoyable as well, but, but it was just nice to have it on both sides where, you know, at the end of the day, when the actors are wrapped, you would also have actors turn around and say, you guys have been doing a hell of a job. Do you need any help? Like, so you guys can get out of here too. Can we help you do anything and get cleaned up? And it was like, that's always nice when you have a cast yeah. like that. That's not like, all right, peace out. <laughs> I said my last line, uh, be back here tomorrow while you guys still stick around for two more hours and clean up, you know, the that cast, kind of thing. The cast of the first was good until Mitch was eating and breaking everything in sight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, what's that? <laughs> no, we just met Mitchell Miss Mussolina, the actor that played Sam. He's a great guy. He's awesome. But like he was just for he's a he was like an eating machine for one and two, <laughs> yeah, like you can't leave him alone with stuff for long he'll just break it. Like, yeah, like we had like corn stalks we were saving for like because we would bring him back in our sense. The next thing you know, he's bored. He's, he's just breaking. Just like what are you? Why are you breaking those? He goes, I don't know. I'm bored. He's like, stop touching them. <laughs> yeah, like he'd walk around. I remember around the sacrifice table. He's like, you guys done with this? I was like, why? He's like. I was just gonna like break it. I was like, no, don't fucking touch anything, man. I was like, Mitch, go back out to like the cast area and hang out, you know. It's uh, so yeah. I mean it, it's funny, but it, it, he wasn't doing it like purposely, like he wanted to no. like destroy the movie. It was more just like, well, if you're done with this, kind of break it. I think you just yeah, have the thing with like, break breaking stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just what do you have downtime? It's kind of boring and so, he's just I know like, he got a, he really enjoyed smashing the pumpkins in the first movie. Because oh, yeah. he did all that, he he switched the clothes and put on Josh's clothes for all those shots too. Because because yeah. Josh wasn't there. Will wasn't there to do Josh stuff. Uh, so yeah, he you know I was like, take it out of the pumpkins, Mitch. Yeah, we're like, go ahead, Mitch, smash that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I hope this isn't too odd of a question, but you know, so the first movie follows Sam and Josh. The second uh, focuses a lot more on Michelle and then the newcomer uh, Heather. I was just curious for you personally, whose story arc do you prefer? Do you do you enjoy following Sam and Josh, or do you enjoy following the Michelle and Heather character in the second one more? Uh, do um, either of you have a preference? I guess. Do you want to go first thing? I don't know. I they're about equal to me. I like I like both of them. I mean, I. If I had to pick, I would probably pick the original only because it's the original. And I thought Mitch did a really good job. Like when he starts out, he does come across as sort of immature in that. And then by the end, he's almost like an action hero, like totally fighting that. And I, I thought I always thought that was really cool because it mm -hmm. just it was weird as like watching Mitch grow up before your eyes. Like yeah, it kind of was, was yeah. Movie, and I always thought that was good. But I think that. Uh, Lexi and uh, Sable do a great job in the second one too. So yeah, it was, it's kind of hard, honestly. They're they're about equal, I'd say. But I said I might let the first one just inch past only because it's the OG, and that's the only reason. Yeah. No, I you know I I'm torn as well because um, it you know it it would have been great to continue the story of Sam and Josh, but changing that to focus more on Michelle. I do like the aspect of where I went uh, with the story and how I was able to tell it from her point of view. But we also got to see Michelle, not necessarily, which could have been one of, was one of the options was starting out as like the victim, the traumatized victim who's like uh, the recluse in the house, never comes out, you know, 
Um, and we looked at that option and we were like, this is not a fun character. Like, I don't like Michelle. I don't want to be on this journey with her because it's not, it's just not fun. So we took the route of, uh, and I think even Zane pointed this out after, after we were in post-production or discussing things, he's like, kind of like Fright Night Part Two, which was a, an influence on me as far as being a college horror film, you know, setting up the way this stuff looks like, uh, I think we did, we were looking at, um, I, I was looking at things like Scream 2, uh, Fright Night Part 2, uh, Rocktober Blood, not Rocktober Blood, uh, Slaughterhouse Rock. I, I just um, wanted to say real quick, I love how you have an entire scene in the movie where, you know, they're going to be setting up this haunted barn, haunted house, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, we have to watch horror movies from the video rental store, and they're basically oh, yeah. doing what you guys did to make the movie. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you got to get those ideas, you know, yeah. uh, which is, you know, funny because then you look at the rooms and you can kind of see what movies some of these, you they know, watching, are supposed yeah. to be from. Like, you know, Slumber Party Massacre, or, uh, obviously some zombie flicks. But, um, but yeah, so I, I think that as far as uh, going and changing Michelle's story arc from being like the victim to being like the girl who's wants to move past past this and uh, make things right. So she's not just like, um, you know, a Debbie Downer, which is what she could have been with the alternate script we had. Uh, and I needed a really fun partner for her. And that's where Sable, you know, was like the cheer, like the cheerleader almost of like, yeah, let's do this. This will be fun. Um, I, I tell people part one and part two, they're such different films, even though they are the continuation uh, that I, I personally like part two better. Um, that might also have to go with the struggle of part one and like everything attached to it. And that part two didn't have that. So it was a much more uh, pleasurable experience. And, you know, looking back, I'm very fond on it. Um, but I also like, the the whole story of part two um but it, obviously that story wouldn't exist without part one so uh i i'm torn you know uh, it's a it's a long way around saying i'm torn i i think i like part i like the the dynamic of part two better than part one i think um just what the do you mean by the part. dynamic just with the, the characters dynamic, the, the dynamic of the the two leads together um you know i I, I love I love the story that I made for part one with those those two, but I also like what I did with uh, for part one. But I also like what I did with part two um, with the the journey of trying to save their friends. There wasn't as much of a um, you know the coming of age or the arc of like we have to get here to here for part two. It was more of just like here's the mission in part two. You know, like our characters aren't really going to probably change other than we're setting out with a goal and we're trying to complete it. You know. Uh, but I, I tell a lot of people when I meet them, I'm like, um, it's part two could probably be a standalone because a lot of people would come to screenings and be like, I didn't see the first movie. Am I going to be lost? I'm like, no, because we did a Friday the 13th part two recap uh, right in the beginning for people just like you. Um, and, and, you know, so it's nice. And there would be people that would come out and be like, that's awesome. That movie was awesome. Now I have to find the original, you know. So that was also a way of writing that script and making it so that you could enjoy it if you never even decided to watch part one. It was still, you know, it's still like a standalone and you know what happens in part one because of how we, we fix it. Good. No, I was going to say, uh, I'm curious as to how you brainstormed for the barn part two, because I look at the barn part one, I look at the barn part two and I say to myself, you know, the barn part two, it, it's sort of like what gremlins two is to gremlins one. 
You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, that may not be a perfect comparison, but, uh, you know, basically the barn part two is the barn amped up to 11 to put it in spinal tap terms. Uh, yeah. How did you come up with the ideas? Uh, you know, like, how do you come up with the idea of, hey, let's do a really crazy opening campfire scene that's sort of like Friday the 13th part two. How do we <laughs> yeah. have, you know, monsters shooting up with injections and all kinds of other, the the chainsaw fight with Linnea Quigley and the, yeah. you know. How do you come up with these ideas? Like, I mean, do you just brainstorm with with your friends or? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's input from other people saying, like, what would be cool to do, especially when it gets to, like, the kills. Like, the kills are a lot, were a lot of myself, Zane, uh, and Max Grove plays lap dance, Larry. You know, a lot of that stuff that popped up was because we were sitting around going, like, what, what can we do? Because we can't repeat anything from the first movie. And then we would shoot stuff and then we'd look at it compared to in the edit compared to other things we go man this one isn't as good as yeah. this previous kill so we need to go back and fix it we, reshoot uh, we did it. That. I remember, uh, one of the big ones i'm glad we reshot it was uh john hale's death that oh yeah was, yeah that one was infinitely better than the original yeah where the farmer the fire comes up, farmer burns his face yeah that looked awesome in the uh um, shoot and then jenny yeah jenny gets a lot of uh, pretty much fanfare every time we show it is the uh, that girl gets her face sliced off like that's that was definitely yeah it's like you know the part where it's like she's in the hallway and it's like squirting out and then she falls to the ground that was one of the last special effects we shot for the yeah. entire film um, but uh, you know the 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 brainstorming uh, you know for the script happened before but you know it, it changed a little bit here and there uh during the pandemic with work and working around the availability of actors. But that was, uh, have you always planned cool. on doing, not to interrupt you, Zane, but was there always a plan to do like a showdown with the zombies type deal? No, he had a book. Like that's a yeah. book he did. Oh, okay. Yeah. The second book I did was called um, the barn part two zombie railroad. So, <laughs> so, and it was basically like that, like the, the kids, somebody ends up unleashing the creatures again but this time the monsters unleash their own creatures, uh, like an army of the dead. And, uh, and there was the local legend of like this, this, this railroad accident that happened and all these railroad workers were deceased, you know, because this, this train that went off. So there was this whole section of the cemetery in my story that the, uh, monsters go to and resurrect the dead. So when they came out, they looked like the dudes in the railroad scene in this movie. And that was kind of like the, you know, the little tribute to that st- that story. Um, so they were all like deceased railroad workers and stuff. And, and it was it was fun in the book. And I, I had to really uh, change. I mean, I couldn't follow part, the part two book at all other than the zombie parts. And then, then the fact that I brought in the screecher and swine into the. Mix. I love the zombie part, by the way, it, because it's just so awesome to see Linnea Quigley and uh, Ari Lehman fighting the zombies with like power drills and chainsaws. I mean, amazing. (laughs) Well, you know, and that's also one of those things like a a business decision too, where you're sitting there going, we need to raise money. We need to give people a reason to invest in this project and we need big perks, you know? So when we were sitting there going like, what could we do? One of the thoughts was on screen with Ari Lehman and Linnea Quigley. Now at the time, you get to be a zombie that gets killed in this scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And we kept that quiet though. So it was like, you get killed by Linnea quickly. And people were like, why is Miss Barnhart killing people in the sequel? You know, cause it didn't say like, you're, we didn't, we kept all the zombie stuff like secret. Um, but that was funny when people showed up and they were like, oh, so we're zombies. Cause I said, bring a Halloween costume and then, you know, we'll do everything once you get here. So they were like, oh, okay, that's awesome. Like that. And, but even then afterwards they were asking, they were like, so how did we become zombies? I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, that's not information you need right now. Yeah. Um, so it, it was funny shooting the movie with a bunch of people because there were different actors and actresses that became zombies. And they're like, I, I don't know how zombies plays into this. And uh, we purposely kept them like quiet, just, you know, just for the, the fun of it. Like when the, once the movie premiered and they got to see it, they'd be like, Oh, that now I understand why I became a zombie, yep. you know? Um, but it also, you know, being in, in Pittsburgh, I think everybody at some point wants to make a zombie film uh, just because of Ramiro. And I think right. this was Night of the living my, dead baby. And Dawn yeah. of the Dead, yeah. That's right. And I think that, you know, this was my my chance of doing it, but making it feel um, natural. The, yeah, not the, uh, just a ripoff of a Romero. Like, your, yeah. zombie, your, your zombies played more into the mythology than it does a Romero movie. It plays more into, like, uh, it just seemed more like an 80s horror. For, well, I mean, not that they didn't do 80s horror, but, like, um, not in a... Romero universe it wasn't like shoot him in the head and you know all that yeah. stuff it was more or less like it felt more like from uh, like spookies and stuff like that where like there's parts where they just bring the zombies back as like as an ancillary so here comes zombies you know it's, it was like that yeah yeah exactly um so yeah it was just it was it was fun to put them in the mix and uh you know and then it also gave us more kill be able to do more kills because there's only so many people you can kill like human beings you can kill in a movie too before you run out of cast members. So, you know, we had that entire se sequence where I think there's easily 20 plus kills of zombies getting it in different ways from, you know, the celebrities. Plus I just really wanted to see Linnea Quigley with a chainsaw again, <laughs> uh, you know, cause you know, it, it, that that's nice. It, you know, it, and, and it was always that, that thing where people were like, Oh, you know, I've never seen Linnea Quigley in a movie, well, you know, like this where she's being like a prude and you know she's very closed up clothing and you know i hate everything i said but i wanted by the end miss barnhart to be a likable character that you could be like there's linnea that's why we've been watching her for this journey for this moment you know to be a badass which which was always the goal if there was a sequel you know so i'd mentioned i think it was the the screecher character what what was up with that whole scene with the uh, the injecting itself with that serum or whatever? Because I was like, that's out of nowhere. <laughs> well, so what 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 was going on there was we were establishing that whatever he regurgitated on or puked on was turning was bringing them back to life, right? But we knew we had to keep them the monsters apart throughout the film, so it wasn't you know because a lot of the people are playing the monsters are playing doubles. So like the actor that played Jack was also the actor playing Screecher. Um, and then one of the, the, the head grips, best boy, uh, Jed was the scarecrow and I was the boogeyman and my wife was the swine. So, you know, we all have roles outside of playing on the screen. So it was like, we'll do this one big scene where we're all together, but then we have to kind of break it up so that we can all do our roles while somebody else is acting and all that. Um, the reason for the syringe was 
the screecher and the swine were the two monsters that weren't like on a mission necessarily. They were more just in there causing chaos. We needed to be able to hand off a way to kill other characters and turn them into zombies. So giving the syringe gun to, the, to swine it, yeah. was, was the way. It. Yeah, they could yeah. spread the zombie stuff fast. Like the- yeah. What I what I liked about it was, I mean, you have just iconic imagery throughout the movie. So, like, what I mean by iconic is like you just have things happening constantly. Like the syringe scene happens, and then this happens, and you know, there's a whole. I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I, I mentioned goosebumps earlier. I also think there's almost like a Scooby Doo vibe to this yeah. one at times. Was that yeah, intentional? At, at, oh yeah, definitely at the end. Uh, you know, with the with with the super beast, that was definitely. Uh, I say that's a tribute to uh scooby-doo home alone little monsters um you know anything where you're trying to catch a monster type flick is what we were trying to do there even the music like if you listen to some of the music that's happening there's like a like that if you go back and you watch little monsters uh when uh, that's the movie with howie mandel and uh fred savage right yeah, yeah yeah when he's trying to catch maurice under the bed he's setting up nachos and all kinds of stuff and he's 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 cut the the bed pose so you can catch you know drop the bed down that kind of style of music is playing so when i was working with the composer i was like this is the reference i want you to go with you know like look at this scene from little monsters and then make your make something yourself but i want that vibe you know but 100 even the first movie i remember the first day shooting barn part one we were doing a jib of everybody walking into the barn with flashlights looking around and i turned to the assistant director and i kind of whispered to him i was like oh my god I was like, I'm making a Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> he, he was like, what? I was like, look. I was like, look how they're, I was like, even Michelle, she's got her hair pulled back like in a in a, ba- a band. I was like, she looks like Daphne. And he was like, oh, dude, I'll never look at this movie the same now, you know, as we were shooting it. Because yeah. um, like, you know, you had like the stoner, which was like shaggy, uh, you know, uh, you know, and I, I, but you could just see, you'd see like the roles kind of, and it was kind of the thing where I was like, I mean, it, it is. It's kind of they're trying to catch monsters and take them out you know but no 100 when i was designing the the stuff at the end of the movie and there was a net i was like oh this is 100 scooby-doo net you know we're gonna do that we're gonna go that way did you want uh just out of curiosity mm-hmm. how important was it for you to have people sort of invest themselves into the characters because i, I mean you know horror movies aren't necessarily known for their character development, right? I mean, we go to see <laughs> yeah. the gore and the, the crazy special yeah. effects, but I think there is an attention to character development in these movies. Like, on some level, I do feel a connection with the characters okay. over time. How intentional was that? Um, I wanted, I didn't want anybody to just show up and be killed. Um, and a lot of that was like talking to the actors, because Zane brought in a lot of people that he knew. Um, one of my favorite in the so movie. you were helping with casting too zane <laughs> yeah 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 because we we run like i do my own projects and i reach out and find a lot of people so he, he and i like pretty much pull back and forth from our yeah our talent pool all the time and i mean i think you know you have in some of these scenes you only may have these characters appear on screen for three minutes but you want them to stand out. So, you know, every scene that we did, we tried to make the room uh, its own style, the dialogue its own style, the kills its own style, so that it was memorable, but also they weren't throwaway scenes. And I think the one that stands out to me uh, 
the most there's three that really stand out to me the most but the, my favorite is the one with ben deedles uh the mecha- the crazed mechanic in the Jumps closet the closet with, with the two girls in the bed mm-hmm. um because with ben he is a funny guy um and sometimes with funny guys you can get like funny good and funny stupid but ben ben is good at playing that type of character that i wanted so i told him i said this is basically what he's supposed to be saying when he comes out of this closet, but put your own spin on it. Make it your, you make, make it you. I was like, this is a guy who thinks he's going to get some from these girls, but he's obviously has to be a dorky enough for them to want to be like, we want to mess with this guy. Cause he's never going to get it. Yeah. And every, uh, pretty much everything that came and out. That's of when ben, they're doing the pillow fight, right? Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Yeah. But yeah. Pretty much everything that came out of Ben's mouth was ad lib. Yeah. And I, and we were howling while, as we were like actually filming it. Um, Cause we, we were like, if we're finding it funny here, I, I know it's going to be funny after it's put together, like with the music and you know, the shots. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did hear a podcast recently that was reviewing the movie and they talked about, there's a, there's a scene where a couple walks into the slaughterhouse room and there's a fake boogeyman and they they kind of taunt him and they take his mask off and they make fun of him a little bit and they were like i've never heard in probably 10 or 15 seconds the lines that this guy said uh introduce so much character development (laughs) and backstory because this dude gets his mask pulled off and they're like you know did your mom make that for you that did your mom make make the costume for you and he's like you know my mom's in county and then i I was gonna say real quick What's interesting about this movie is that you you have all these characters that you don't completely explain their backstory, but you know there's something there. I'm like yeah. watching this and I'm like, wait, who is Lap Dance Larry? And then yeah, he shows Lapdance up and I'm Larry, like, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you did you base that on someone you knew or something? Was there, there was, did you know a dude like that in college? Well, no, but I, I assume that dude is Max for real um, <laughs> <laughs> because. Um, I became friends with Max uh, after Bong and the Living Dead, and I told him about the scene in the movie. I said, there's a character that gets lap dances that I want to introduce into this, because essentially in the film, the whole setup, you know, you always have a setup for a movie, is that the girls can't do their haunted house on campus anymore because some of the girls were doing lap dances and charging for it during the last fundraiser. So now the campus is like no more stuff on campus. You can't do it. That's what leads to looking for an off-campus haunt and building something somewhere else. Um, I told him though. I said, I just, I just, you know, it needs to be a character that sits there and gets a lap dance and gets killed. He was the one who was like, I got it. So the character's name is Lap Dance Larry. This is his back. He gave me a whole backstory which we cut out because he. It, it's just too it's too crazy this dad was killed during a lap dance so he's out there avenging his father like oh it's just crazy shit but i was like he had it in his mind like i know who this character is i can do this um plus like i know he w- thought those girls were beautiful like so he was like i want to be lap dance larry and get these lap dances during the actual film um but no i mean like that's just some of the stuff that was cool was like, you know, I, I would write down like, these are where the char- who the characters are supposed to be. And then those people would, they would ad lib things, yeah. bring them to life, you know, Expe- like, like I was saying about the, the dude getting his mask pulled off. He goes on this whole tangent about like, 
I've been living in the back, sucking on sucking on apple cores and uh, juice, juice boxes, boxes. Juice yeah, boxes. eating old banana peel. And uh, I mean, it was just su- such random, sh- such random shit. But then afterwards, you think like, I would have never wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like it's so random, but it is. It's like it describes this character so much. Like, oh wait a second, so this dude's been hanging out in this bar. Yeah, like, in this, that short span of time, you understand that guy's character. Then you like, understand why he's like so down. Like, stop, stop <clears throat> causing him problems. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna job. assume. So we mentioned earlier some of the cast, and of course you have the mayor is played by uh, Lloyd Kaufman, and it's funny because I'm thinking about how many of the people from your movie I've interviewed. And I've interviewed Lloyd, Linnea, uh, Jason Brooks. So there's a lot of people in your movie, Mr. Lobo. Uh, but uh, it's it's just interesting. I've spoken to so many of the people that were involved with this. Uh, but Lloyd Kaufman, uh, Lloyd is a fucking character, to be very honest, in my experience. Yeah. you know, When I interviewed him, the interview went wrong at first. Uh, his tech wasn't working. And he's like, I don't know how this shit works. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> no, this whole trauma... The character that he puts on when he does the intros to his movies or when he's at an event, it's not just a character. This is how he really is. Yeah, so yeah. what was it like filming with Lloyd? That's what I'm getting at. Well, you had to no, carefully watch Lloyd, that's for sure, because he tried to keep putting a clown nose on in between shots and stuff. So you would just be randomly filming him with a clown nose on. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. It's kind of like... um uh, I will I will give him credit for this. He's you know he's an older man, but the amount amount of spunk yeah. <laughs> that he has, uh, I can't have it. Uh, you know he, he has um, an amazing amount of spunk, and I think people people look at him as a sort of goofy guy, and I can see why. He's also like really really smart. If you ever like have a chance to like get, sit him down and talk to him about different things, he's just an all around. He, he's like an American original. <laughs> yeah. He, oh, yeah. And I told people, and I've said it several times, trying to film Lloyd on The Barn 2 was like as close as I've ever felt like to trying to film a live action Looney Tune character because he was like at times just kind of like all over the place, bouncing off the walls and stuff. And you're like, woohoo, you know, you just you didn't know. Yeah. Um, what, what I come to find out with Lloyd is that like, same kind of thing. Uh, he wants to take his own spin with what, you know, whatever the dialogue is. The problem is, is he wants to make it super trauma and it's yeah. like that's that's where the movie starts becoming spoofy you know so we would let lloyd get those out of his system and then we'd be like all right lloyd now let's do the one that's written and then you will do it um i was gonna say you uh, you know i think people when they see lloyd kaufman's name in a movie they're like oh this is gonna have that trauma type mm-hmm. were you trying very hard not to have this be a movie that people would think oh this is gonna be like a trauma movie or Oh, this is going to be like a full moon movie. You like, you you sort of want it to have its own brand. I feel like both the barn yeah. and the barn too. Yeah, I would say if anything, I want you know, I wanted it. If people were to, were to compare it to some sort of a VHS company back in the day, it would be full moon, but it would have been like early full moon, like or puppet Empire. master. Yeah, yeah, like before it started, they started doing a bunch of like kooky bong, stuff, you know, a bong or bong, the evil bong, bongs and ginger yeah. mans and yeah. Um, because now they have of, the ginger weed man, so uh, they they've gone pretty wild lately. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, um, yeah, but I mean, you know, I, and that was my thing is like, I didn't want. Uh, I picked Lloyd because I wanted to work with him, and I thought he'd be great as a town mayor. But I also didn't want him to be 
the Tromaville town there, you know, where that you'd see like in Poultry Geist or Toxic Avenger or something like that, where you're just like, okay, they, he fits in with the rest of the movie as if when he was doing it here, it did not, it felt out of place. And somebody recently was telling me like, um, I've never seen Lloyd Kaufman act so well in a movie. Like he actually could act. And I said, well, he can, but a lot of that was editing, like <laughs> editing around some of the, the kookiness that he was doing. Cause it was a, a lot. <laughs> Which, you know, is no no offense to Lloyd. He might just be so used to that and people hire him for that that he thinks that that's what, that's what they you, want. Yeah, like it that's is what true, though. That that's he, he that's not everything that he's done. You know, you can see him in, in certain movies. I mean, before Tremor was around, he was in like little cameo roles and uh, supporting Rocky? roles in like Rock. Yeah, yeah. Say, yeah. Rocky, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I know he's got the chops, you know, and that's why that I was confident in bringing him in. It was just some of the things I'm like, we, we can't use it, man. Because he would say something like, let's hurry, wrap this up. I got to get to the new Troma, Tromaville film, you know, down in the theater. Yeah. And we're like, can't, can't do that, dude. Do it again. <laughs> or he'd be like, what in the, uh, he, does, he does say what in the Tarnation, which is the funny. One, the one, the best one, the one is the, sh- everyone shut their mud flaps. That shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That shut your mud flaps. So like, I, I, I got to ask, were there any times where you're filming and like you're filming a scene and it doesn't have to just be with Lloyd, but I could see it happening with Lloyd where you're filming and you guys just can't help but laugh, uh, whether it's the actors or the crew. And you're like, ah, oh, we have to reshoot it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think like what, what are some of the bloopers? <laughs> usually we're pretty good about not laughing, but there might be one or two. I've. I, I'm probably guilty. I know I thought I probably snickered once or twice during some, um, just because I it's it's not if it, they're not scripting it, so I don't know it's coming. It's like it it'll catch me. Yeah, I, I mean I know definitely with the guy Justin who played the the fake boogeyman. We I was off into an, another room with a monitor, uh, watching it, and myself and the the actor who plays Jack, we were dying with all the stuff he was saying. Um, and we were afraid we were going to mess up the audio. Same thing with Ben. Um, I want to say another, uh, I know, I know when Lloyd came out and he started saying, um, Mrs. Barnfart over here, which we did not expect him to say Barnfart, uh, which we kept in the movie was one of those ones of like, you know, that we all like the whole crowd laugh, like it's laughed, it's in the movie, but it was okay because, you know, he's making fun of the other character. So the laughs were fine to be like leaked in to the sound. It didn't mess it up. Remember that and the, one of my favorite parts of filming in the whole movie was the drive-in scene. I love that scene. Um, oh yeah. Remember where a guy kept telling Lexi just hit me, just hit me with that thing, and she just fucking falls off and cracks someone. Oh uh, with, with the bat. With the bat. <laughs> he said, just hit me with it. She's like, all right, boom. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Yeah. You know what what's is. fascinating to me is uh you have a few different locations to the movie. So mm-hmm. like you have the, the town hall meeting on one end of the town and then you have the haunted house, haunted barn. But what's interesting to me is when I first started watching it, I was like, oh, is this going to be like one of those films where they just have, you know, all the actors in one location and they're never going to meet the actors from the other location, you know, uh, but you sort of tie everything together really well and you have the actors end up meeting up at certain points. Uh, was that intentional on your part? Because I've seen movies that always, you know, like a movie where, oh, uh, we're going to get Adam West to be in the movie for a day. So we'll have like a framing scene with him. It seems like you very 
studiously avoided doing that type of uh thing yeah yeah no i mean i I I wanted everybody that we brought in that was a name to feel organic to the film, and that that, that's what there. I meant. Like like it felt organic, whereas some films yeah. it doesn't always feel that way, you know? Yeah, because like I remember people saying like, "Oh man, you got Joe Bob and Darcy in it. How are they gonna? How do they fit in the mix?" You know? And uh, and then obviously Doug Doug Bradley, they're like, "You got Doug Bradley. Where does he appear?" And and Lloyd Kaufman. But then we had a lot of compliments afterwards of people saying like it didn't feel like you threw them in the movie for the sake of having the access to them. Like you actually gave them parts that meant that they, you know, that, that were good and they were roles for them. Um, specifically with Doug Bradley, like I, I kept saying to Zane, I was like, well, if we can't get Doug by the end of this, I'm just probably going to cut this scene. And I hate to do that because it was such a big scene of establishing that, that lore. Um, but nobody else could have done no. the job of telling that ghost story like Doug did. And that was one of the few scenes you talk about, you know, did you ever laugh or, you know, and, and kind of mess up the stuff. That was one of the scenes where I was so captivated by what he was saying that everybody in the room kind of turned to me after he was done. And they're like, are you going to say cut? I was like, Oh shit, I forgot we we're making a movie. Cause I was just, yeah. I was so caught up in his story. It was like, you know, listening to your grandfather tell a ghost story. That's like actually haunting, you know? Um, so like that was the how important was that scene uh i mean in terms of you know you're really trying to develop the mythology especially of this Mm -hmm. character the boogeyman character the the dead miner how important was you to get was was it to you to get that right to show the sort of origin story in a way that would be impactful Uh, it was very important but at the same time i was like it has to be a name that 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 does it because he's going to be on screen for quite some time and he has to be a very good storyteller but i also wanted to stay true to what i told everybody when we did the campaign which was questions that came up at the end of the first movie like why is daniels on the back of the hat these will all be answered you know uh, uh moving forward um and that was always the that was always the legend was that his grandfather had you know had an encounter um i just didn't want to reveal it in the first movie but uh I was starting to get really bummed when we, because we shot the movie out of order for purposes of actors being like, they only had so much time here. So we had to shoot it. Like we actually shot that scene several months apart, maybe, maybe even six months apart. I was going to say a lot of people forget that, you know, movies aren't filmed like chronologically each scene. Right. So, I mean, there's probably issues that come up with that uh, where, you know, you have to match shots. You have to shoot things at different times. Oh, you have to make sure the actor looks the same in this shot, even though you're shooting it, you know, months later. One day, yeah, guy, no. one day, guy's a beard. The next day, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Does that <laughs> stuff come up when when you guys were filming these two? Uh, the beard not, thing. <laughs> not not part two. Part part one. Part, part one, one. There was an actor who had a beard, and I specifically told him. Now remember, tomorrow we're shooting a scene. Uh, that requires you to have the beard. So don't shave it. The shaving part does not come until after we've done all this. And he was like, gotcha. The next day he shows up the set. He's like, I shaved my face. Like you asked me to. Yes, I was like, we no. <laughs> we had to build in the beard. Yeah. Like right before, like within an hour of filming, we had to do, we had to have an effects artist do a full beard on him, beard which on. we were not prepared for. And he, and he did a good job. I mean, he, yeah. he went around the set and he found like, wigs and started cutting up wigs and gluing it to his face and you can't tell um 
but but yeah it's stuff like that sometimes you're just like what the fuck are you thinking <laughs> you did not follow the instructions whatsoever yeah. um but in the case with the doug bradley scene we were trying to wrap the girls as much as we could because the lead had to, she was moving um so we were like everything she's in has to get shot and be and be gone and we don't have a walter right now we'll come back to it later so once i was able to finally secure doug we had to go back to that location relight it uh and then put stand-ins in that uh, sable is the stable real person for, yeah stable stood in for herself and, and then, my wife was yeah, she for- was, uh, was michelle's character um but that was one of those stressful things of like, man, if this doesn't look exactly the same, you're going to tell yeah, that tell. these were shot, you know, like in completely different areas. But it was the same house. It was just months apart and it was all shot at night. We shot that entire scene at like uh, sometime between like eight o'clock and one o'clock in the morning or something like that because we had to wait for the sun to set so we could actually light the room um, yeah. to make it look natural. So. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just crazy stuff like that that you don't think about when you're watching movies, like how much out of order it is. And you were asking about, you know, seeing the characters come together. Uh, the whole the whole aspect of people getting killed in the haunt while the two leads are outside running the haunt, that was also part of the story from the get-go, but it actually being something that saved us during the pandemic because we were like, well, we can't work with these people right now, uh, but we can easily go in and shoot the stuff inside the haunt and keep rebuilding sets and, you know, doing different scenes uh, that won't, you know, that keeps the movie in production while we're waiting on things to let up to get the, the main cast back together. So thankfully that, that the way the story was written, that gave us the, the ability to do that. And, uh, you know, it didn't require the main cast to be in those scenes while it was all happening. One of the questions that always comes up uh, when I interview someone from the world of indie horror movies, and I people are always interested in this. Um, I think people kind of ask too much about it uh, because it's usually more mundane for filmmakers. But people are always like, what is it like filming, you know, the obligatory horror movie nude scenes? Are, are they difficult to do? Is it, Do the actresses get nervous? I, I usually tell people, I'm like, you're filming these movies so quick that usually I don't think people are even thinking about that. It's, um, I'd say it's a little awkward at f- just at first because, you know, it's the first time this, per- this person's going to sit there and, like, you know, get naked in front of you. So it's, like, kind of weird. But, like, once you kind of rip the Band-Aid off, then it's just, like, it's business. You know, it's just it's it's part of it. It's just, you know. Yeah. Um, and we run sets that are very structured and accommodating so it's yeah. like uh you know the moment a scene is we re- re- say cut the robes come in you yeah, know and they're covered yeah. and it's, it's all about being comfortable and never feeling like oh there's everybody's gawking at me and stuff like that it's very respectful even to the point where we, we were like restricted phones yeah no phones on phones set, on set. You know, um you know not even bts cameras for some of the stuff unless they were like yeah shoot this um you know or even uh Hey, the scene's coming up. We only need myself, Zane, and sound in here, so everybody else can stay out. You know, just to make it comfortable on the the actresses, so it's not like you know everyone's getting an eyeful, yeah. <laughs> you know, right there in front of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely can be a little awkward because, you know, uh, leading up to that, 
they're all clothed and you've discussed about the nudity happening and then obviously they have to get naked in front of you but yeah after you get like the first one or two takes out you start to forget oh these people are naked and you're more focused on getting the shot getting the action getting the effect and you know and everybody's to the point where i will even say that one of the the girls in the lap dance larry scene it was we were shooting in the middle of summer and it was so hot even with and we had to keep turning the air conditioning off in the in the studio that she was basically like we were bringing her the robe and she's like hey if you guys are okay with it i would just rather not put the robe on and just stay nude because i'm so hot and we're like that's fine and I, and then i i said i'm sure the the crew will enjoy that <laughs> yeah, yeah you're gonna get no no, no complaints. yeah no how, no 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 complaints yeah. um, but no but you know but it's one of those things of like you can feel comfortable enough where you're like, it's fine. I trust you guys. It's not like, I feel like, Oh, someone's being real creepy stalkerish to me. I need clothes. Yeah, it's to really me, important, you know? especially in this day and age, just make everyone feel comfortable and, uh, you know, try to run as professional as possible. So you, mm-hmm. like you said, uh, it goes so fast. And like I said, with that scene, man, we had like these vines coming down and choking the one girl and, Jack's coming down. There's so much stuff. We're like, we got to make sure we get all because we only have them for so long. And that mm-hmm. wasn't like that wasn't just like some girl in a shower, just like suds enough. You know, it's like there was a lot of stuff going on. Like there's like she's choreographing her dance, and then they they have to hit marks at a certain time. So it was. Yeah, it sounds not not to interrupt you, but it sounds like initially it could be a little bit awkward because of course, I mean, when someone is getting nude, even if it's not like you know, them doing it for like some erotic personal reason. It's just because they're shooting it for a film. It's still, you're making yourself very vulnerable. So Mm -hmm. the person that's getting nude is feeling vulnerable and you're also having to figure out, uh, you know, how can I make them feel comfortable? So it's initially awkward, but it sounds like after the initial aspects of it, you know, it just becomes, ah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes if everyone's cool, like people might start joking around stuff, just saying, you know, just saying dumb shit. And if you're, if everyone's yeah. cool, like I, I was there for, I guess when you said Darcy, she was, uh, you guys all started clowning around with. Oh yeah. I mean, she Darcy made it very apparent once she got there, like, she's like, Hey, I'm, I'm not modest, you know, all that kind of stuff. Cause I was, but she know, used to work at adult films, I think. Yes. Yeah. 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 She did. She was in some like hardcore triple X stuff, but, um, and, you know, but but I told her, I said, look, I, you know, regardless of your past, you're on a film set for us now. So we're going to treat it like anything else. Like, and you do have a nude scene coming up. So, you know, do you want people off the set? You know, and she's just like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not modest. I appreciate it, you know. But uh, I think that they respect that, that you take the time to have the con- to sit down with them away from everybody and talk about like how they feel or what they would like, what's going to make them feel the, the best in the scene. Um, but yeah, there is, there is that you get to that point of like, you can gauge how people are, if they're comfortable and they're having enough fun to like joke about, you know, what's going on in the scene. You're like, Oh, this guy's getting his dick ripped off, you know, and we can joke about that. Like he's gagging on a dick, you know, and not be like, Oh, are we going to offend the person in the room with us? Cause they don't know our humor. Uh, yeah. But then they'll throw a zinger out too. And you're like, okay, we're all on the same page. This can be a fun set uh, where other times, you know, you don't always start out like that. You're always kind of cautious. Cause you're like, you don't want them to walk away and be like, Oh, those dudes were talk dick and fart jokes the whole time, you know? And it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, so you, you always want to make it so that when somebody leaves, they recommend to somebody else yeah. that they've worked with. They that feel safe. That's, about, work with these people. that's probably the best thing you can get as a comp is like you were professional and they felt safe on your set. That's, that's one of the major mm-hmm. things that, 
makes us feel good is when people say, I love working with you guys and it's great. And There's just one more thing I wanted to touch upon. And I know we've gone over two hours, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But uh, first, I want to compliment you on the way you used uh, Diana Prince in the movie, because I have to be honest, I'll see her pop up in certain movies nowadays, uh, the occasional full moon movie or more famously Halloween ends. Uh, and she just sort of uh-huh. showed up at Halloween ends. And I enjoyed seeing her because I love Darcy the Milk Girl, but it was also kind of jarring the way she was placed in Halloween Ends. And I was like, okay, this has sort of taken me out of the movie. Whereas uh, I think you you made sure to place her in a role where it didn't feel jarring for her to be there. And uh, I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, the, the way the characters interact and their placement, it all sort of gels together. It's not just, okay, let's have a cameo for the sake of a cameo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I, because honestly, I'd rather not do it if that's yeah. if that's what it comes down to. Even though if I I have the opportunity, I would rather just just scrap it, you know. And I guess so, the go on. I'm just I'm just I'm just appreciative that people notice that. The last thing I wanted to touch upon because we've talked a lot about the cast, and I don't want people to get the impression that you know the barn and the barn two are just uh, movies with like oh see these horror movie stars. It's not that. It's it's much more than that. I think they'll enjoy the special effects. They'll enjoy all the zany antics, the soundtrack, everything. It's the yeah. whole package. Um, and I, I don't think we focus too much on the cast to the detriment of everything else. But one thing we didn't talk about was the Barn 2. You have uh, creature effects from Joe Castro. And yeah. uh, Joe Castro is a very interesting filmmaker. He's done the Terror Tunes movies, which... You know, they have their fans, uh, but he's also actually very talented when it comes to special effects and creature effects. Uh, I know he did the creature effects for Todd Sheets's uh, Bone Hill Road. He's actually yeah. really accomplished and he can get stuff done on a budget. So can you talk about the experience of working with uh, Joe Castro and how you work together, how you got the creature effects made? Yeah. Um, so Joe was fantastic creating all this stuff. Um I would send him sketches of what I'd like. Like, basically, this is what they're supposed to look like, you know, in my mind. Can you get as close to this as possible but make them better? Uh, and that's not the experience I had on the first movie. The first guy couldn't do anything I asked. So it was just kind of like, well, this is what you get, you know, which thankfully he did Jack close to what I imagined Jack to look like when I was a kid. <laughs> not so much as what Jack, I wanted Jack to look like for the film. Um, but that's why in the first movie, you didn't see the scarecrow take his mask off because I didn't have confidence that this guy could do a corn cobbed head monster, you know, um, Joe Castro, on the other hand, uh, was able and capable of doing that, um, and do it within, within a budget. Um, but he's fast. Uh, I mean, I think I want to say he made all of them within like two months, um maybe the super beast took a little bit longer but he did have the molds already for some of the heads and stuff but um working with joe was great um as far as communication doing what you asked and all that uh uh i can't give any complaints uh, about that joe came out here he did i think two days of special effects um because one of the producers was friends with him and they were like i really want to bring him out so he came out and he did like the indiegogo stuff that you saw with uh, Linnea and Ari 
like when that happened and we needed somebody and he did it all with like the help of like two assistants. Um, I mean, he was cranking out the zombies. I mean, we had over 20 people there uh, that we had to do in two days and we had to shoot, shoot them as zombies approaching and then zombies deceased, you know, again, like after the attacks. So he had, it was just like Zane, I, I'd send him in, Zane would film him. We'd send him right back out. Like it was just like a, like a circle of like, okay, zombie in, zombie out, go get killed, come back in. Here's your, you know, then going back to that location and filming the death, the aftermath. Um, but Joe was instrumental making sure that that stuff ran smoothly, smoothly. So I would, I would recommend Joe for, for all that stuff, you know, what, what's the talented. most, what's the most interesting, uh, like, can you tell a special effects story? Not even necessarily with Joe, but in making either the barn or the barn, barn two that would maybe give my listeners insight into what goes into making special effects, because I, I think it's becoming a dying art form. Everyone's all into CGI now. And I'm not saying yeah. that's entirely a bad thing, but use practical effects. Uh, any good stories about how you achieve the practical effects in the barn or the barn? I'll, two? I'll, I'll let Zane take on this one. Cause he's, he's really good at that stuff too, especially when we do reshoots. Cause we look at things and go like, man, it's missing something, you know? And he's like, this, this is what it needs. The I'll tell you the time Joe blew my mind. It, it was such a, a small thing too. Was those goddamn nails going in that girl's face from the nail gun? Mm-hmm. How he built those? He took toothpicks and he took like a hole puncher. And after you punch holes in the paper, it leaves those little round discs of paper. He glued those as the as the heads on the nails and that. And I was like, son of a bitch! Mm-hmm. And I'm watching him do this and put it in the girl's face, and I'm like, this. Like this fucking guy, it's like this is so badass. Like I wouldn't even have thought of doing something like that. And he's her whipping out, yeah, do this. He's sticking it. Looks like this girl's got nails in her face. And I was like, damn, dude. I was like, he was doing yeah. quick too. Like he was like, he was like, got it there, boom, boom. I was like, damn, this guy's really good. Yeah, especially um, and then he was doing the stuff where, like the guy, the one guy gets hit in the head with the baseball bat and his head splits open. Pops open. You know? That was I mean, amazing. Yeah, that stuff was all made down in our effects studio like day of moments of like nothing was like pre-packaged put on like he was just whipping it up i think it was um skin tight and he was just he was putting it on the people making it forming it um he's quick he's quick like that i would say um one of the things that we always notice in films is when there's not a lot of blood when someone gets killed or or like a cut or something so we're fans of tubing stuff uh, you know whether it's tubing tubing up hands like there's a part where the dude uh one what, of the guys, what do you mean by tubing for people that aren't no, um, like blood, in the like film blood, blood, blood tubes because you have to run it through the appliance like you got a slit throat you're going to have tubing going up to the wound so you can pump it so blood sprays out and give that gives that a nice like splatter effect coming because that's what i like is when something gets hit it's just like you just see it like eject out like that's that's good stuff that's fun stuff yeah so like there's there's a couple scenes where when we were going back and doing things ourselves because we didn't have the ability to have special effects people come in because it was during the whole pandemic situation we were handling stuff um we were doing uh this one part where the boogeyman gouges out this guy's eyes and zane was like let's tube up up through your sleeves, up through your gloves, right through your, like right underneath your fingers. So that when you're pushing in, it's just blood squirting everywhere, you know, as where we had done a take before that. And you just saw me like squishing my fingers into his eyes and it just wasn't as impactful. But as soon as we added the squirts, it was like, Oh man, now it looks gnarly. Um, 
and then this the same thing with uh um i want to say there's a part where the boogeyman punches through a guy's chest uh that was a really really tedious setup to achieve uh but it was also uh completely tubed up through my hand out into the heart so that when my hand busts through the wall you know they're they're pumping behind me but i'm squeezing and squishing all the blood out of the heart you know um it's simple things like that 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 make it look more realistic than if it would have just been dry and you know or just simply wet coming through the wall you know that was a fun stuff and it doesn't take any cost like nothing no go ahead sorry I was gonna say that was the fun stuff in the first movies when we had to go back and do the kills and the who nanny because I said we were trying to come up with like really cool stuff without just being like oh here's a guy going to stab someone when you see blood splatter a wall like uh, one of the the my favorite ones we did was the uh, the apple bobbing shot where we actually uh, yeah. cut a hole in the bottom of the bucket so you could look up through and be like we're the bottom of the bucket look up you see the guy's face go into the water and the blood starts coming out of his mouth. After he got the the apple ripped down, ripped his teeth out, he gets his head shoved back in. You can see the water cloud now, like that. That stuff, I think, if you use, use a little bit of ingenuity like that, kind of makes those deaths like a lot more interesting than just you know just that little extra thing we went through. Just you know, because he just could have ripped the apple out and you saw his teeth, but to see him get shoved back in, and you can see the blood going into the water, just adds that extra little umph to it. I was um, gonna say, do you think? Um... Do you think making films on a tighter budget or a restricted budget um, in a way is beneficial in in certain in a certain sense uh, because it forces you to be more creative yeah. and to do things differently? I know John Carpenter has said that, that in a way yeah, uh, he liked making the movies like Halloween because they were on a lower budget and it forced him to be creative. I think it's a double-edged sword. Like, of course, you don't want to go have any snafus. You just want to get it done, get it done good, you know, the first time. But... I think there are times that we've gotten some great stuff uh, just by, I said that that heads the, the dude getting his head chopped off in the first made kept not working, not working. And then finally I went to the effects guy that we brought in later that did good work. And I was like, you think of a better way to, he said, instead of getting the head cut off this way, he goes, what if it bisects the head and it just flops in the brain? And I'm like, if you can do that and then it didn't, it looked amazing. And I was like, that's definitely, uh, that was definitely a good, yeah. like it was cool. Like I said, we were just thinking on our feet and he did that. And I was like, you know, you're just doing it. And it looked great. And I said, so sometimes I think it's, I'd say I kind of agree with it more than I disagree with it. But I said, of course you always just want to go in and just don't want any problems at all. And yeah, <laughs> I don't like I have a plan. I just wanted to be right. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of nice have you know if you know you have that financial cushion, um, but Zane and I both know like we need we try to budget for like the bare minimum, um, yeah, and and try to stretch it as far as you can. So like you know even raising something that's twenty five thousand dollars can by the end look like it was seventy five thousand or something, you know. Um, but like one of the effects that I thought we went back and did that looked was one of my favorites is the sheriff head crush. Um, yeah, that was because, awesome. because I mean, it literally was a spare head that we had used uh, countless times between the first and second movie that we painted up. I put a mustache on it and a different wig, but then we carved out the inside and filled it with uh watermelon and a big bag of like water blood. blood um, yeah. And then, 
when I, I played Sam's foot. So when I stomped down, I mean, I gave it all I got and, and it went everywhere, just erupted. Uh, and we had originally tried doing that, uh, pra- like practically in camera where you saw Sam's foot actually hit the guy in the face and kind of crush him. And we put stuff all over his face, but we couldn't be as impactful because you'd obviously hurt the actor. Yeah, we were doing it like we were playing playing it in reverse and all that stuff. So like he could really pull his foot back really quick. So it looked like it jammed down really fast when you, when you played it in reverse. But even then it was like, it's just not selling it. So then we were like, let's just go back, take this $50 head that we've had and uh, let's let's try to amp it up. And then, you know, it turned out awesome. And when people see it on the screen, they're like, oh, you know, like we annihilated this guy. But it was it was also like the budget restrictions of like, Man, would it have been great to have a couple thousand dollars to spend on that and have like a full casting of that actor's head? And, you know, we could have really crushed the front of his face. But for it only being like a two second shot, I mean, it's still, you know, it it still was um, just as just as good, I think. Remember when we built built the puppet for candy corn to open his mouth? Oh, yeah. And the first one, we basically built like a Muppet. And that was kind of. Well, that was like a last minute kind of, I think, like a on the fly. Because we're like, what if he could like pull the zipper and his mouth just opened up and it was used like a puppet and just gave him like these big teeth. And it's fun. It looks cool. It's, it's, yeah. It's shot. Did you ever have any, um, you know, David Lynch talks about happy accidents, you know, uh, which I think people know what I mean. They're like uh, moments that happen when you're filming where you don't expect to use it in the film, but you're like, oh my God, I have to use this now. Yeah, uh, there's a scene where when Jack gets the M80 thrown into his face in the first one. Oh shit! Yeah, that's <laughs> right. yes. You want you want to talk tell him about it? So, uh, we built a fake like a st- we used a stage that we had. It was actually the same. I think the same stage the Hucklebucks are performing on in the in yeah. the uh, Hootenanny. So he dragged this stage out to this area and just covered it with dead leaves so we could do like these tricks of like vines coming up out of the ground and all this other stuff. Well, when Jack is laying on the ground, they drop the M80 into his head. Uh, we're like, well, we have to do like a like a flash, like for an explosion. And we took a 2K under there, which was in hindsight, it's extremely dangerous. And Justin was down under there and uh he was gonna because those they don't have a switch on them. You have to like you like connect them and pull them. So you got to do it. He had to do it like real quick. As soon as uh, like, okay, we're going to just do the explosion. Now when he, when he plugged it in, the light came on one single leaf fell into that thing and it combusted and we're lucky. It didn't catch because the way it went up, I would have thought if it hit those other leaves, man, that thing would have, that stage when it went up and yeah, in, in the, when you watch the movie now, You'll see that flash of combustion. It's that's the leaf exploding when it fell into the light. This was like yeah. just like burst. Yeah, it shattered yeah. the light bulb and everything. It caught on fire. But yeah. that was something that wasn't intentional. That we were like, dude, this is awesome. We got to keep it yeah, in the movie. It looked, it looked, it looked how the effect you wanted to look like it, like an explosion because it literally was like a little mini explosion. Yeah. Yeah. All you had to do was just add the sound effect to it. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we've gone on for about two and a half hours here. So I do want to let you get going. But uh, I'm assuming we can't expect The Barn Part 3 
Miss Barnhart's Revenge. But, you know, what do you have in store for us next, if not the Barn Part 3? Because I know you don't want to be so, the barn guy, right? I don't want to be the barn guy, but I, I would like to finish the trilogy uh, and, and then be done with it, you know. Uh, but that's not what's on the slate right now. Uh, Zane and I are wrapping up uh, one of his films that he started when I met him, and it's finally going to be out this year called Cryptids. Uh, Zane, you want to talk about Cryptids? Yeah, it's just it's uh, Joe Bob's, and that's what we brought Joe Bob down for. So it's basically about a DJ that has a, uh, or not a DJ, but like a, like a talk show host that has like a radio paranormal show. And on this particular night, it's the day of the Mothman Festival, and uh, all the callers are just all monster stories. So we had like different directors. I directed one, Justin directed one, a few other directors that we we like and respect. They they did stories. So expect a big old uh, monster fest movie coming up here, hopefully by the end of the or by fall, hopefully. So yeah, what was the deal with uh, the Mothman Festival in relation to this? I've been to that before. So, um. The Mothman Festival is just supposed to be like it's happening that day, and that's what kind of inspires him to open up his his uh, calls for all the callers to tell about monsters. And uh, Justin and I actually went down to the Mothman Festival. We filmed B-roll, so we had like this cool opening where it cuts to a lot of B-roll stuff we shot down there. Oh, so you that you you actually went to the you've been there too, so you'll know about yeah, yeah. the. It's so yeah. wild because you go to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And they will take you on bus rides of the TNT place where the Mothman supposedly was. And that there's people walking around in men in black outfits. And yep, you have a yep. giant Mothman statue with like <laughs> red eyes. It's, it's, yep. it is surreal, especially when you're there for the festival. Yeah. yeah. So we, went, we went around shooting all that stuff. And I said, we got that all together and it's, uh, it's looking great. So I can't wait to get it out. And then uh, he's also working on Treaters right now. It's another Halloween themed horror movie we've been working on. Uh, we did we did it as a, a fake trailer in Ten Thirty One Part Two, and we got a pretty good response from it. So we decided to make a feature out of it. So we're in the middle of filming that right now. I'm glad you guys are going uh, with the the like Halloween horror sort of theme with some of your movies because you know it's weird. Everyone talks about holiday horror, but really there is like a lack of like horror movies that take place on Halloween. There, there, there is surprisingly less, I think, than there should be. Um, you know, now yeah. every year I feel like there's five fucking Christmas horror movies that come out. Uh, but <laughs> all we get with the Halloween is the, the newest Michael Meyer movies. <laughs> yeah. He and I he and I both are like big fans of Halloween. So it's like all in fact that's why we agreed to do 1031 for Rocky Gray and we did stories for those. So I always enjoy I think I think in fact his story in Cryptids is uh takes place on Halloween. It does, yeah. Or is it or is it is a day? It might be a couple, it might be a day before it's Devil's Night. It's Devil's That's Night, it. yeah, the night before. But it's yeah. we, but the the decor and that's still there, so it still has that feel. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean i I'd make Halloween movies until I die because I said I it the cool thing about Halloween movies is it gives you an excuse to actually have really good set design and lighting and things like just it really it really makes it fun, and fun costumes and yeah plus i mean i love halloween i i don't think i could ever have enough of it so making a halloween film is just kind of where i'm most comfortable you know and it's the most fun to do i'm sure at some point we'll do i mean cryptids isn't necessarily a halloween film but uh i'm sure at some point we'll not do as many halloween films uh as we do now but but i i will tell you just from being 
uh, the person who sells this stuff, Halloween sell, sells. <laughs> so, absolutely yeah. Does. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you got you to do the sales. Also, uh, do you have a favorite Goosebumps episode? Since we mentioned that Goosebumps influenced the barn. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would have to say, and it, it's probably just because it was the first time I ever saw a live action Goosebumps was the Haunted Mask. Um, you know, because it just, I, there was just something about it, you know, never expecting to see that the books turn into something and then seeing it come to life. And it, you know, uh, it looked similar to the way you, I imagined it. But hearing like the Goosebumps theme and all that stuff, like it was just, uh, I, I don't know. It, it, I would have to say between that and uh, I was usually more fan, a fan of like the, the longer version, you know, like they, sometimes they did like episodes and they turned them into like part one and part two. And now it's a movie or part one. Oh part yeah. Three, yeah. They would not, do like, not, um, I, I forget. They did the, uh, one, one day in horror land or whatever. That was like a two parter. They did a few two parter episodes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it was their way, like getting around it for filling episodes, but also then later putting it out on VHS to sell as a full, full movie. Um, there was, there was a lot like, I, and now that I have kids, I find myself going back and rewatching goosebumps with them and watching, are you afraid of the dark? Uh, and even like monsters and you know, all, all oh the, my all god, the monsters is <laughs> everyone forgets about monsters. I know people yeah. that love like Tills from the Dark Side, but they forget about yeah. monsters, which is basically oh. Tills from the Dark Side part two, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love all that stuff, you know. I even watching um Tales from the Crypt Keeper with my kids. So oh the, the, the cartoon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those are fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, I was gonna say there does I do feel I know you're talking about the TV shows, but there is sort of an EC comics vibe in some ways to uh the barn and the barn part two. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I I can't say that I haven't been influenced to make those movies uh like that I'm not influenced. Like the mo the movies are hundred percent influenced by so many things I've seen and I love that I wanted to turn my thoughts and feelings of those into something, you know. And I, I think that's why Zane and I mesh so well on it because he he understood that you know we both have the same kind of passions and likeness. Well, hey Zane Hirschberger and Justin Seaman, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners get a copy of the Barn and the Barn Part Two? So, if you want to really support us, order it from Scream Team Releasing, where we get a hundred percent of whatever's made profit wise. Uh, that's screamteamreleasing.com. You can find all the barn merch there, uh, but you can also purchase it on Amazon, uh, which is, you know, that helps us out as well, but Amazon takes a huge chunk of the sale. So we're not getting nearly as much. We're, we're, we're getting about 45% of the cost on Amazon. So uh, right now we, we focus primarily on physical media. That's what keeps the business going. That's what keeps us helping us fund films and doing fun things as much as we can. So if, if you definitely want to support us, uh, you can pick up, the barn one barn two you can pick up zane's force to fear uh and zane's done segments in all of the 1031s i ha we have all those as well so you can pretty much find everything that zane and i've ever made at screamteamreleasing.com along with a ton of other films like you had said dude party massacre and, yeah, yeah, everyone uh, watch the dude party massacre because you know what you get to see pat oswald in it which is always fun and it's yeah. the only slasher movie where you get to see larry king get killed yeah <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> Yeah, and the Andrew WK is in it too, hanging yeah, out on the roof. Yeah. And there's, yeah, I mean, the good thing about Scream, I was gonna say the good thing about Scream Team releasing too is like all those discs, or at least the majority of them, are all packed 
with extras and stuff you won't get on like digital and things like that. I mean, there's like there's commentaries, there's making ofs, there's bloopers, there's a, so like you're you're getting your uh, your money's worth when you when you get them there. Yeah. Plus, on the Screen Team site, we have limited edition slip covers that you can't get other places. Also, depending on what the title is, uh, we still have movies that are signed by cast and crew. So you can still get Barnes one and two signed by cast and crew, even uh, upgrades that you can get them signed that are signed by Joe Bob, Darcy, Linnea, and Ari, plus the cast. Um, but there's you can go through there's there's tons of movies there's tons of different options but we try to cater to the independent audience as if we were the scream factory for indie films so every everything's pretty much loaded and you can find a bunch there but 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 definitely if if you really want to make sure that your money's going to the artists uh and not being funneled out and trickled out between other places and fees and all that go to scream team that supports us the most or there any convention Right, find you in the convention circuit. I know you were just yeah. at um, Horror Realm. Uh, Horror Realm, yeah, which I missed yeah. it because I moved uh, away from Pittsburgh about a year ago. So I oh, okay. missed Horror Realm and it, it was a bummer for me. But I'm looking over your website right now. You have a lot of movies that have been on my radar um, that you're releasing I, uh, through Scream I, Team. So uh, I'm, I'm looking at them right now. Straight Edge Kegger, uh, The Last Thanksgiving seems like you have a pretty good catalog there and that mm-hmm. people should really check them out because it's it sounds like you uh are kind of discerning with the types of indie horrors that you're releasing i also like yeah i mean we we are i i just wanted to say real quick because i forgot i was going to bring this up earlier when you were talking about dude bro and the barn looking like retro ones another good one on there i want to definitely give me a shout out to justin russell's uh the sleeper is uh yeah. you're into that kind of like retro looking 80 the sleeper is uh is excellent yeah he did a great job he's actually one of the inspirations for me to want to make sure that the barn stayed an 80s film because uh a lot of people were talking me out of it and trying to make me do a uh not do a period piece and make it current and then i saw justin russell selling the sleeper and i was like dude i was like if this guy is putting out an 80s slasher film that looks like an 80s slasher film, I'm, I can do it too. You know, like there's no reason to not follow the passion of the look I want, you know? And it was cool years later, you know, you fast forward and here it is, there's a distribution company and I'm selling his movie, which I'm, I'm a fanboy. Um, but yeah, uh, it, as far as, uh, the picking up titles, you know, we don't put out a bunch. We put out maybe before the pandemic, we were starting to get around like eight a year, but after the pandemic, it turned to like four or five, just trying to survive a little bit and recoup from the the damages, the pandemic cost. Um, but, but yeah, we are, uh, you know, we, we have a certain thing we like. Um, we try to, we kind of have a customer base that knows the kind of content we're putting out. So we try to like, you know, make sure we don't pick up any like duds, I would say, or, or, you know, there's got to be some something to it. There's either got to be a charm to it. There's got to be a good story to the filmmakers or something that's endearing for us to want to invest our money into the product, you know, to take a chance on it because we're not a huge company. Uh, we're not putting out, you know, 100 movies a year or something like that where it's just a title to collect, you know, 20 bucks of sales a month. And, you know, it turns into a big, big thing for us that we're never going to pay out because we pay out every filmmaker. Uh, every filmmaker gets their cut. They get paid. You know, we're honest. We we're individuals. You can see us at conventions. We're not hiding behind a desk. Um, but at the same time, we do have to be, you know, a little cautious of what we pick up and what we don't pick up just for what we think is going to be marketable and, you know, make money as a business. Uh, but I will say this year with Screen Team, there's a lot of cool titles coming out 
uh, getting into May through the end of the year. This will probably be our biggest calendar year for releases uh, since pre-COVID. So I'm excited to see you know where this year goes and what leads into next year. Because if if things continue the way they've been, Scream Team will get even bigger. You might see more projects coming out from Zane and I, uh, you know, and even even our friends too. And uh, of course, I should mention. Um, I know you can get the physical copies of the Barn and the Barn Part Two, but I I think the Barn is also on streaming. Uh, I I know I think Screenbox still has it, right? I think Screenbox still has it uh, right now. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how long the terms are because of uh, a company I use that the the that is ending here soon, and I get the rights back because I I gave away my digital rights prior to having Scream Team, so I'll get the rights back this year, and I have to kind of redo everything on that end with the barn. So I'm not really even sure where the barn is right now. Okay, well, thank you but, again. But I, I believe. I believe it's on screen box. Okay. Well, thank you again, Zane and Justin for coming on yeah. parallax views and everyone, please check out the barn and the barn part two. I think if you're a fan of horror movies, like I am, you will find them to be a real treat. Thanks again, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. Well, that does it for this edition of parallax views. Happy spooky season folks. And remember, to check out The Barn and The Barn Part 2 on Screambox. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax View with Jerilax View. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.